All right, welcome back to another episode of On The Cast. So for those who this may be their first episode, we talk about all things lure and fly related, strictly no trolling unless you were Mitch. I don't, I don't troll, but I do troll people. There's a massive difference between that. So, yeah, it's welcome back to episode number twelve. It's been a hot minute. We've gone back. We've gone to fortnightly episodes, which is better than some podcasts, worse than others. So, hey, you get what you get. You can't have it all. But we have a good podcast today, Dylan. We have probably outdone ourselves for episode number twelve in terms of our guests. So I'm honoured to have a couple of these guys on there. How, how do we do it? How do we do it, Dill? How the hell did we organise this? Well, I guess before we mention who they may be, where are we going today, Mitch? So this is a destination episode, mm. our second one for on the cast, one of many more to come. We've got a few more teed up, but today we are heading over to the Middle East to Oman. Yeah, that's one of the go-to destinations for basically all lure and flight people, and. We're lucky enough today to be talking this destination with both a avid avid lure fisherman and an also an off-tap fly fisherman as well, or at least one that I would regard to that level anyway. So I think um, I think we'll yeah. Well, firstly, have you been fishing at all? Have I been fishing? That's a great question. Bit of cray diving now that we've had some low swell. Fishing not so much. I think last session I did would have been a bit of cod. Yeah. Went up. Well, I think I went up with you, didn't I? Well, you, do you, you think you went up with me or did you go up with no, me? I did. That was definitely my last session. But yeah. it was a good one. We got three days up there. It was tough, but we still ended up with, what, 25 fish in the end, I think it was? Yeah, something like Bought that. my first trout cod, first couple of trouties, which was really cool. Never yeah. crossed paths with one before due to absolute sheer bad luck, but this trip got us a few on the board, which is nice. Yeah, so is it bad luck or poor angling skills? I don't know. I'm going to go with the poor angling skills. <laughs> no, conditions are a bit more fruitful in terms of catching a couple of trout cod. Some higher flows than normal, so they seem to be a bit more a bit more abundance because everywhere had high flows um, as, a, as opposed to a bit more of that slower stuff. So, yeah, it was really good. Hmm, lots of top water explosions. So any any trip you're getting bulk top water hits, it's a good one in our eyes. And, the, and, and yeah, one of the places we went, the water was nice and clear, got, missed a few nice fish on fly. Um, but it was a bit of hard work on the old fly, unfortunately. So did most of it um, conventional, unfortunately. Yes, and I did get a good laugh at Mitch watching him lose what would have been a very, very large fish courtesy of the old fence in the water. <laughs> I, I did break down a little bit when I watched that thing just ram you through it. But Yeah, the, uh, yeah, the, co- the commentary post fish was, that looks incredible, cast, hook up, fence post, just destruction and extremely sad Mitch. And one hell of a boil. So mm. we could have had a nice potential meter plus fish on the bank there, but hey, we know where it lives and we'll be back. Unless that farmer doesn't let us back who yelled us off his land but about two minutes later. So sorry, not sorry to that bloke. Not sorry, <laughs> not sorry at all. Stuff him. Oh well. Let's jump into it. So today we have the Infamous John Carhill and Andre Van Wick joining us. Boys, introduce yourselves. So, Andre, where are you based? How's it, guys? Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm based currently in Cape Town, South Africa. You might hear by the accent. I'll try not to mumble through this so you all can understand what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, so born and raised in South Africa. Uh, grew up on the East Coast. Uh, nice and warm. Lots of fish, lots of fresh water, lots of salt water. 
and uh, shipped over to the Caribbean for five years or so after I finished high school. Did a little stint in Canada after that, playing with salmon and then uh, and bears and whatever else shit they have there. And then uh, been back in South Africa probably probably 16 years now, um, living down in Cape Town. Right. How, how is it down there at the moment? It's windy today. <laughs> but, uh, no, yesterday it's been pretty good. We've had a we've had a good a good summer so far. I think um, Cape Town, especially. We the last five years, we were one of the first, were predicted to be one of the first most <clears throat> in the world to run out of water. So we went through a pretty radical drought, which absolutely destroyed a lot of not destroyed, but really kind of put a lot of pressure on a lot of our freshwater fisheries, and in turn, a lot of the saltwater fisheries and the estuaries and things like that that we do a lot of the fishing on because there just wasn't any fresh water coming down. One of the upsides of 2020 is that we had an incredible winter. Um, the Western Cape here where I live gets all of its rain in the wintertime. So we had a really, really good winter. All of our dams, reservoirs, rivers, lakes, everything's full for the first time in sort of 15, 20 years, which bodes well for the next couple of years fishing-wise, certainly from a freshwater perspective. Um, you know, trout rivers are running well, all of our bass dams are full, uh, and in turn the estuaries, so we're a lot of our breeding fish and we have a lot of estuary species, the cob, which you guys call malaway or chewfish. Yeah. They certainly, I'm sure as you guys know, on your side of the world, they depend, or ours do anyway, depend on a pretty good flow of, of fresh water coming into those systems for the, uh, the bait fish, the prawns, whatever else they're eating, so keeping that balance correct. So... On the flip side, yeah, we've got probably got a pretty good couple of years ahead of us, hopefully, on the fishing front. Yeah, awesome. It's yeah, it's over here's been wet too, so it's it's looking like a a good is it La Nina or El Nina? I've forgotten which one's which. La Nina, we are in there. The wetter yeah. of the two cycles. So celebrating the the yeah, the, the, the La Nina. I'll get I'll get there eventually. I'll learn how to speak English English at some point. <laughs> Except that that's Spanish, but yeah, sure. Shit talking is encouraged, so I like that. Um, <laughs> you're not, not, even get, not even getting me on technicality, you're getting me on proper, yeah, proper language. Yeah, that's it. That, that, that's Mitchell, it Mitchell just goes silent for the rest of the episode now. <laughs> embarrass himself. It's all good. That's all right. And then we'll continue, we'll continue on this train of thought. John, one, how have you been? Where where are you? What have you been up to? How's the fishing been? Yeah, boys. Hello. Hi, Dre. My favourite South African. Um, <laughs> you need to get out and meet more South Africans, Johnny. <laughs> hey, I, I know a couple of others, right? And they're all fishing guides. <laughs> you, you're just perhaps just in front of Chad Oak, okay? all right? Is that well, okay? what well is at least I'm taller than him. What, what is with every guide being South African? Also, I, this is a yeah, question. Yeah. This is the question that needs to be answered. It's yeah. true. Weird. Uh, there was a lot of. Uh, I mean, from my side, look, guides were a completely foreign concept to South Africans where we grew up. You know, I mean, there was no such thing as a fishing guide. I mean, it was a completely. Well, to us back in the you know eighties and early nineties, that was a, it was an American thing. It's like, oh my god, people actually get paid to take people fishing. Are you mental? Um, so, I mean, obviously there were charter, you know, charter boats and stuff like that, but being certainly from the fly fishing side, it was only in the, I'd say probably mid to late nineties that one or two trout guards popped up in South Africa on the fly fishing front. And then I think when the Indian ocean, uh, atolls opened up, 
the first guys to go in there and really start setting up operations. I think the first guys were Americans. Uh, US Fly set up the first setup out on St. Joe's Island off Seychelles, and then the Seychelles started taking off. And uh, you know, some of the guys, South African based and South African companies, really got in there and just flooded the place with South African guides, and they've kind of done pretty well. And now, now they were kind of uh, led by JP Bartholomew, weren't they, Drake? Oh yes, yeah, pretty groundbreaker, groundbreaker legend. I mean, <laughs> following his mighty footsteps. <laughs> <laughs> now, nah, boys, I'm uh, back at work. Unfortunately, after five weeks off, I planned some leave really, really well around the end of our restrictions, like to the day. I just nailed it. You got lucky. And, yeah, to- I got lucky. I did, and I've I've been fishing pretty hard for the last month, and. And I'm just feeling human again. <laughs> but I'm back at work and it's only taken two or three days for all that relaxation to just leave my body. And now it's like, oh, we're back into that mode, you know. So, but things have been good, guys. It's, um, it's like they're happy days again in Victoria, aren't they? Oh, like you, I've almost forgotten what's going on. Like you look back, like since March, all of us have been pretty much had our lives just turned upside down. Yeah. And well, it's good to see we're all on top of it now, but geez, there were some tough times in the middle of it for everyone. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, now that we're fishing and traveling and getting out and back in, back out into the world and going camping and on weekend trips, it's like, so you forget all the crap, which is energy of the world is restored. (laughs) It is. Well, Australia is. It doesn't sound like South Africa's doing that great. (laughs) No. We're a couple of weeks behind you all. Just a little bit. US. <laughs> Just a couple of go, yeah. Where, where have you been fishing, John? Uh, so been a little bit at East Gippy. Um, did a couple of flathead trips, chasing the, the spring duskies. A uh, little bit of Eildon, a bit of Mulwala for cot opening. Um, been down the southwest chasing kings. Um, a, a lot of local fishing too, Um yeah, the dreaded snapper. Um, mm. Yes. Uh, it's okay because they're on jig. Um, That's cool. We're all right with that. Yeah, we're okay with that. It legitimises it, doesn't it? Yeah, I will um, say that it was an amazing snapper season this year for like... Yeah, it was good. It was so, good, wasn't it? Aaron and myself, every time we went out, we are finding like you wouldn't always get numbers, but the quality of fish was fantastic. Yeah. Nice yeah. to see. Yeah, I, I didn't do it much, but... Um, when I went out, it was like, yeah, this is good. This, this is like producing their decent-sized fish, like four-kilo fish. Yeah. Um, it's better than staying home. Bloody earth. It's, yeah. it's good to have a lure option that close to home and they're quality fish. Like a lot of people would travel a lot of, like quite a few miles to catch a red like that. Yeah, 100%. Um, saw a couple of cool things uh, down at Tyres um, on a couple of evenings. Uh, experienced sandworm hatches or sandworm spawns, yep. which I've never seen before. And isn't that epic fishing? It's amazing. Um, so for those yeah. who haven't seen it, it's like when the little polychaete worms, they come out of the sand and they all just rise to the surface and it's like watching literally thousands of little red worms just wriggling on the top and everything comes and eats them. I've never seen so many brim, like honestly mm-hmm. never in my life. And they you watch Bream, bream, yeah. bream. Um, and like literally cricket score sessions. They were fantastic. Really good. So no, I had a good time. Caught some good frogs, caught a 88, a 90 and a 95 dusky. So I, I PB'd and then I 
double PB'd afterwards. It's fantastic. Yeah, good. So you finally broke the 90? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, with a, a 90 and a 95, so I'm wrapped. How good is that? And on swim bait or glide bait? The, uh, the 88 was on a crank. Yep. And both the, the bigger fish were both on glides. Awesome. What, yeah. what glide bait? So the 95, will you laugh at this, it was on a John and Claw 70. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was. Sweet. Yeah. And the uh, the 90 was on an Evergreen ES Flash. ES Flash, rather. Yeah, nice. And that one, that one on the bloody 70, get like the Gancraft, you would have been shitting bricks. Oh, yeah. The, tiny it, little. Because what have they got? Only like size, is it size eight trebles? Not even. I, I think they're smaller. Yeah, I think they're 10s. Like that's. Yeah. Shitting myself. There was about four bent hook points. It would be. Yeah. And the. The, the lure actually came out fairly easy and it's like you're looking at it and you're going, oh, my God. The thing that was probably more surprising to me, or not as surprising, was that the leader held up. It was like 12 pound and it was mm. deep. <laughs> it was how do you fish on tackle that you shouldn't really? Didn't you get a big-ass cod while you were fishing for those golden things that you guys get there? What are they called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that was you the, a 90s. It wasn't like mega, mega, but it was like a 90-centimeter cod on – very light yellow belly gear. That was, and that's the longest cod fight I've ever had. It's like went eleven minutes, and the the boys here would know like that's like what? That's like ten cod fights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe more. Almost like set the hook, comes up, shakes its head. You got it in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, in terms of the water that we were fishing last week, that's about twenty one cod fights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, it, it sounds like you've been living the dream for the last five weeks. So, welcome back to reality. Thank um, you. How's how's the business been? For everyone that doesn't know, John Cahill is with Ebb Tide Tackle. Awesome, awesome group of people. Awesome gear. So, how's the business been? Uh, it was a funny time, COVID man. The uh, there, there was kind of really two halves to that. The first half where like no one knew what was going to happen, but the first half where sales went nuts. It was like completely ridiculous. I think people were maybe in a mindset, this won't last long. I'm mm. home bored. I'm just going to spend money. I'm going to kit up, get ready. And uh, we just broke record after record. But then when Melbourne went into our second lockdown and it kind of it, it extended and it, it, there was a bit of a realisation this isn't going away, um, and it kind of timed a little bit around the end of the Murray Cod season, um, the tap turned off. And um, things got got pretty tight again. So now that things are open again and with people are fishing again, it's kind of back to normal. Um, you know, th- things are in that that steady state, but it's damn stressful owning a business, man. It's like so much easier just to earn a wage somewhere. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, but yeah, being being in the tack- tackle industry ourselves, yeah, it's um, yeah, we have good days, we have bad days, and I'm glad that we're just getting a pay- like paycheck. It yeah. works out a lot easier than trying to actually run a business by ourselves. But for you guys that do it, and especially for like you who run Ebtide with like such a boutique sort of fish like fishing store, it's it's amazing. But also, I could see how it could be pretty pretty fragile sometimes as well. Well, I'll tell you this bit. So, if you went back a few years, eighty percent of our business would have been around the GT popping market. This year, it is lucky to be five. Yeah. No one's traveling. No one's doing GT mm. trips. So if if you can't be adaptable, you die. 
Yeah, yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, it's where you guys are so lucky yeah. having the cod, like the, your cod side's grown so much in the, what the last two years, I'd say, JC, from what I've yeah, seen. Yeah, it's funny because when we first started to mess around in the cod market, it almost seemed like it wasn't worth it. Hmm. Um, really glad now we did. <laughs> <laughs> but like the crazy, crazy thing is like, so like Mitch and I, when we work at Laverton, so shop in the middle of Melbourne, I would say like people just do not believe me, but it's like, Cod fishing is still our biggest market, bigger than snapper, bigger than squid when you talk, and talk about an all-year-round market. Like when I first came up here what, two years ago nearly, like the guys are saying, yeah, the biggest, the most important fish we have is Murray Cod in terms of business for us. Could not believe it. But time and time again, you see it. Like sometimes you'll have days where you might sell, yeah, a couple of 5-0 Gamma Cat 2s or a few gulp jerk sheds, but you'll have 30 spinner baits and a whole heap of other stuff coming through the till and... You just scratch your head every time wondering why it is, but I guess so many people are getting infatuated with Murray Cod and just wanting to get into it and wanting to learn about the species and giving it a shot, and it's fantastic to see. And it's I was at uh, after the very last after, which is effectively two years ago now, yep. I remember someone saying to me then, uh, the, the cod bubbles burst, it's all downhill from here. I'm like, no, I, I don't agree with you. Just getting started. Yeah, it's just beginning. It's putting you know, it lightly. You know, and we're lucky being in Victoria, seeing as the fisheries are stocking more and more impoundments and mm. more and more native fish all over the place. In terms of, like, maybe New South Wales and Queensland, the cod bubbles burst, but down here in Victoria, we're ramping up. Yeah, for sure. Steamrolling ahead, so... Anyway, we'll keep we'll keep jumping back into the podcast. Um, we want to know a bit more about you guys as well. So, interchange between yourself, talk among yourselves, but where did... Um, yeah, John and Andre, where did you, like, where'd your fishing journey start? Andre's oh, got more impact I came out of the womb with a flower, with a fishing rod in my hand, pretty much, uh, my poor yeah. mother. But um, I think, like a lot of uh, a lot of you know youngsters, if you if your mom or your dad fished, that's how I got thrown into it. But I was pretty much straight flat obsessed as a kid. Um, I used to like we got bass fishing and I'd catch little tilapia and stuff and stuff them in my gumboots to smuggle them home and then like drop them in the bath when I was bathing at home and my sister freaking out. Mom! You know, Andre's got fish in the bath again. And Dedicated. then my first, my first trout that I caught, I insisted that my mom leave it next to my bed when I went to bed in a Tupperware. <laughs> and I, I woke up at whatever it was, probably 11, 12 o'clock, midnight or one o'clock and looked over and my fish wasn't there and apparently lost my shit um, and screamed blue murder until they brought it back to me. So I've been kind of obsessed, I guess, from a, from a young age and uh, I got into the fly fishing thing. My dad grew up in, uh, in Zimbabwe or Rhodesia, as it was called back then. He was a hunting, shooting and fishing kid and um, grew up in the bush. Loved to fish and... Yeah, I think just passed it on to me and we both picked up fly fishing pretty much at the same time. Um, and I, where I grew up is pretty lucky to have be on the coast, surrounded by a bunch of uh, sugarcane farms, which are full of bass, largemouth bass and tilapia and things like that. And then was a, sort of a two-hour drive from the Drakensberg, which was, was full of trout. So started with trout, fly fishing, um, and then just moved on to just throwing lures and flies at pretty much anything that moved. Mo- moving on to moving on to bigger and better things as I'd like to think. Yeah, look, I, to be honest, I mean, I spend more t- more time chasing tiny little nine inch trout than many other things. Certainly this year, because uh, well, I think the scenery and the accessibility. We have some world class micro streams here, so kind of 
fish for what's on your doorstep as much as possible. Um, and John will probably have to cover his ears here, but I do also fly fish for carp quite a lot, which is... A- I do too now, man, so it's cool. I do so too. you have got four streamers. That doesn't fucking count. No, no, no. I'm now using little nymphs and shit, man. I don't even know what they're called. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch has no, even got me onto that now. It is any for anyone who hasn't tried carp on fly, just give it a shot. Oh, it is they can be such assholes. They can be so easy. And then you go to another water system. I mean, we've got them all over the place here. They're a bit of a nightmare because they have destroyed a lot of what were really good fisheries, some bigger, yeah. uh, like big impoundments and, and quite a few of our rivers. But like some mm-hmm. fisheries, they're they're so easy. You can catch them off the top. You know, they'll eat anything you throw at them. Mm-hmm. And some of the other fisheries, I mean, you can, you'll see 200 fish in a day. And man, if you get one eat, you, you, you're you king of the hill. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but I do enjoy them. But uh uh, yeah, when I shipped over to the Carib, I mean, like most teenagers, like, you know, surfing and, and girls got in the way of my fishing, but it kind of not not enough to make me not fish at least probably once a week. And uh, my dad, obviously, big fisherman, and, and he had one afternoon off a week, which we always went fishing. So that was kind of a good thing. Kept I could never have an argument with my old man because if we were, you know, if I was at loggerheads with him, it meant I wasn't going fishing. So I, I kind of gave up on ever having loggerheads with him, but then shipped over to the Caribbean and that was, you know, suddenly a whole new world of all the stuff I'd seen in magazines and films mm. or whatever. So top and bonefish, snapper, all those other things, the odd permit that I never caught but saw. Um, and the whole, I got the jigging bug, I think, Read a, I think it, I can't remember which. It might have been a saltwater sportsman or one of the one of the American magazines had an article with um, the first article in vertical jigging that I've ever seen. I think Nicola Zingarelli, the Italian guy, wrote it, and it was all the whole. Which was the gear, you know? That was what just attracted me. The, the opening spread was um, the original Seven Seas guy with a just a, an enormous dog tooth tuna. It was probably the first doggy I'd ever seen uh, with this unbelievable looking rod and a spinning reel in his stuck in his mouth with the sort of 60 kilo 70 kilo doggy lying in his lap and just came over from there for me uh, <laughs> so i think it was the first stella i saw as well and being a being a gearhead it just sucked me in totally <laughs> yeah. it gets dived dangerous dived when you start saying world, you. oh dived into the world of jigging and then and popping and uh Went down a pretty big rabbit hole, I think, like a lot of us did at the time. Bit of a rabbit so, hole, isn't it? <laughs> here in the methods were new and they were exciting and attractive. And I think it was also the same time kind of before Facebook, but where <clears throat> online forums were, were taking off and were a big thing. And you could kind of learn from people that weren't in your immediate circle. And you could do the research and you could find the gear and you could meet people. I mean, I think, John, that's probably where we first crossed paths was – you know, one of the the popping forums way back in the day. Thanks GT to the popping, <laughs> probably. You know, yeah, and the likes of legends like Mark Harris. You know, God rest his soul. That brought a lot of people together and brought a lot of information together. And I think that the I don't know. In South, certainly in South Africa, a lot of people, and I'm sure it's not just here. It's a lot of people all over the world. You know, you're pretty protective of the information within your local circle because you don't want your your um, fisheries to get run over your techniques and guys are a little bit secretive but interestingly the internet was kind of different because people were so far away from you 
that you were learning from. It's not like they're going to come fish your waters and take yeah. your fish. So people were a little bit more open, I found, than, you know, guys going, oh, well, yeah, no, I don't want to tell you where, where to fish and how to fish because I don't want you to catch my fish. But, you know, I'm never going to go and fish in a lot of the places that these guys were, you know. But they were targeting the same fish in similar conditions, and we got to learn a lot that way. And Yeah, I went down that rabbit hole. And then fly fishing came back with a vengeance. Uh, it never really left, but opportunities to go certain places and, and chase certain fish again on the fly and picking up fly tying again after sort of probably a six or seven year hiatus um, got me sucked back in again. And I also realized I got old and f- too old and fat to swing big heavy GT pop is all that. It's a lot easier to throw a fly rod than it is a 200 gram popper in 40 degree heat. But there's nothing better than watch a sweaty, dry chug away, man. <laughs> With a cigarette hanging out of my mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your yeah. head glistening. <laughs> peak, peak physical fitness to it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, peak, I'm peak physical drinking fitness, to be honest. <laughs> I can out drink John and Ed, but uh, I don't think I can out fish him, that's for sure. <laughs> what, about, what about yourself, John? Uh, it's nowhere near as exotic, but <laughs> so I, I grew I up in, in put to hear. yeah, I, you guys will relate to this. So yeah. I, I grew up in Shepparton and I'm the youngest of six and I kind of remember the early parts of my life where dad and the brothers were off doing big boy stuff with fish and guns. And I kind of, there was, there was a period where I spent a lot of time with my mum but mum was really cool with this. Mum would take me fishing. And we've, I've actually got some amazing memories of some very early years where I kind of wasn't all, uh, yet able to play with the big boys, but mum and I would go and do trout streams together. And there's some funny stories with her where, you know, that typical thing where someone walks down to the stream, they park their car and walk down to the stream and you've just caught a fish and it's in the icebox and they come down and say, you know, how are you going? Any any fish kind of thing. And, you know, that, that's a question no fisherman wants to hear. And I remember, yeah, because you, you don't want to tell them, right? And I remember my mum lying to this guy. And my mum is the nicest woman in the world, God, God-fearing, <laughs> lovely. And she lied to this guy's face. Nah, no good here. And right on cue, the esky started rattling with this trout yes. and nearly tipping over. And the guy, like, looks at the esky, looks back at her. Esky does it again. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, just such a classic moment. But when I was kind of old enough to play with my older siblings and, and dad, I guess my early memories are both of, of shooting, like a lot of ducks, rabbits, foxes, all, all, all of what we used to do. But Murray Cod, Murray Cod was life. Murray Craze were life. And... You know, I learned that deep, dark side of, you know, not what we're here to talk about, but bait fishing. But I actually regard bait fishing as an important fundamental for a good lure fisherman. A hundred percent. Like you learn those basic skills and whether it be just learning how to fight a fish, but more importantly, just seeing how the whole ecosystem works from the small things, whether you start catching your bait and you just build yeah. up. Yeah, I think it really matters, man. Yeah. yeah somebody, and, one and, of my friends are getting into fishing. I'll always say just start off with a pack of prawns down the river or go dig up some worms and start there. 100%, man. Like mm. you, you, you learn how a fish will eat a bait. 100%. And I think, I think that's important also for 
allure fishermen to understand that, you know, they don't just always come up and smash it. And, mm. you know, you guys are cod anglers, yellow belly anglers. How often do you have that little bit in your retrieve where you just feel like a little donk? Yeah. And or even you just get this feeling like you know it's being followed. But that's yeah. probably because it's just been brushed so minorly by a so, fish. Yeah. That yeah. you just you just know. Exactly. And yeah. they're, they're things you learn, right, in, in mm. the whole journey. But I guess I got to the point where I was old enough to do things on my own and, and that's when lower fishing kicked in. And I used to, you know, the, the local Shep Lake walk down there and start to chase redfin. That's that's where my love for lure fishing mm. comes back to is reddies in Shep Lake, still there today. The reddies are still in there. And it, it all began from there. And uh, kind of shooting dominated my later teens. I really got into deer hunting. And that lasted up until I really discovered girls. <laughs> and that that really stuffed things up for me. And I reckon there was about a, I don't know, exactly five to ten year period where, yeah, I still fished, but it wasn't the most important thing to me, mm. you know. But going back like 20 years now, fishing has been so, so important to me. It has been, you know, my, my first waking thought or most of my last before I go to sleep. Um, it's been a very long second wave for me, you know, that, that young wave before girls and then the, okay, you get that out of your system to an extent and become an adult fisherman. And yeah, I've, I haven't come up for air in 20 years, I reckon. And that's gradually over that period morphed at least a decade ago, probably more like 12 years ago into basically lures only and discovered the, the, the rabbit hole as Dre calls it of you know blue water top water game fishing and mm. kiss everything goodbye <laughs> i still but, think like it could be debated with mitch and the whole fly thing but i reckon like the whole top water jigging thing that's the most dangerous rabbit hole to fall down in terms of financial stability <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 well like, yeah, dylan, dylan uh one of our other colleagues perry stavropoulos is um yeah yeah, they take, we're going out on Sunday to go chase some tuna and kings. So Mitch's be- first little topwater dedicated mission. So, How do you feel about that, Mitch? Oh, I'm so excited. Um, I'll probably bring some uh, seasick tablets because we'll see how that goes for me. But um, like I've, like now that I'm working in the tackle store and playing with saltigas and playing with stellas and dills, pulling out like pulling out jigging rods and casting rods and lures and stick baits and everything, I can really see why people get stuck into it. And I'm more than excited to see what happens. And even if I'm just there to document, film some stuff, take some photos, like I'm just excited to get into it and i can see how it's going to be basically the world's worst sinkhole aside from yeah. fly fishing which has to be the most expensive form of fishing out there known to men oh dear yeah I think there's a good argument for either side of them because i've done both <laughs> and i've fallen into both holes um basically on my left leg in one hole and my right leg in the other hole and the bank manager hitting me in the dick <laughs> so it's like yeah. I absolutely refuse to try a saltwater fly because I know exactly what's going to happen. Like I'm just going to stick. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like you know you can do it as as gnarly as you want. You know, you yeah. can get there's the I think also the big difference. There's a lot more tackle out there now, certainly on the lure front. You know, spinning reels have come a long way. It used to be Stella Saltiga. That was it. You could not mm. go anywhere 
without those if you were going heavy, you know. Um, and a lot of and those reels were and they still are just obscenely priced. But you you know now it's a little bit more accessible. The flower world, you know, I mean a reel all it does is hold line. Mm. Uh, you know, and a lot of the I'm sure you'll agree people obsess about rods and they obsess about reels and then they'll go buy a cheap ass fly line. It's the same as, you know, buying a, a whatever, a Stella and a carpenter and spooling up with, you know, great braid and, and getting the right leader, putting a carpenter on the end and then putting shitty hooks or putting shitty split rings on yeah. the thing. It's like, yeah, you know, yeah. you've got to, like where you connect it, where you connect to the fish or where there's a breaking point. If that's shit, everything else is shit. So. Mm. Yeah. You guys will be yeah, really pleased. expensive because the destinations you want to really go to where it's really, really good, Yeah, that's where the money goes, unfortunately. Yeah, it's in the travel, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you look somewhere where it's on your doorstep, I mean, look, you guys, Australia is, is incredibly blessed. Well, it certainly looks like it from, from this side of the world in terms of the variety of, of both saltwater and freshwater environments that you guys can spend time in and, and chase fish and have the lack of people with such an enormous landmass and so many waterways mm. and fish. So you're very blessed in that respect. Same as, you know, guys who live in the southeastern part of the US um, in terms of chasing, you know, tarpon and bonefish and redfish and snook and things like that. It's accessibility is a, is a big thing. Like saltwater fly fishing in this country is hard. There's, it's all, well, certainly down here where we are, it's always windy, it's cold. The fish are few and far between. And I guess like most fisheries, those the guys who put in the, you know, the extreme amounts of time that find the fish. And I think that goes anywhere. Yeah, it, it, it definitely does. But it also goes back to the, you know, you were talking about the, the bait fishermen and having a huge respect for them. I mean, a lot of the, it's typically lure fishing guys will look down on bait fishing guys and fly fishing guys will look down on lure and bait fishing guys or whatever it is. But to be honest, the best anglers I know certainly in this country are, People that do all three certainly come from a bait fishing background and then go to like lure fishing in the surf. Um, you can learn so much more from those guys because like you said, John, they know a lot more about the bait. They're super involved and in tune with the ecosystems, etc. And it makes a huge difference. The, the, I guess these aren't one-dimensional skills, lure fishing. It's not like if you're a right. lure fisherman that just goes out and throws lures, you will be so less effective than a lure fisherman that, that understands perhaps the movements of the bait and the fish. And he might he might cast 10 casts in a session, but if they're the right casts, I'll back him in every time. Totally. Yeah. It's still fishing at the end of the day, and it's uh, there's a lot of skill and knowledge involved, not just firing casts. Like I've I've never met a fisherman that basically didn't come from a bait fishing background that had those fundamental fundamental skills and then work their way into either lure fishing and then fly fishing or I know a few. I almost ended with our age group. I'd say, Mitch. Like so, mm. I feel anyway. But like knowing like a lot of sort of younger anglers coming into the scene, they seem to sort of it's almost like this culture where they've seen it, whether it's on Instagram or oh YouTube, I don't know, and they've almost just jumped jumped balls deep straight into lure casting. And I feel yeah. like, like that's what that's fantastic to see. But I feel like you'll, as JC was saying, you just miss such an integral step of your of an angler's journey. You're just skipping. You're missing out on so much there. But Absolutely. It's the thing, each each to their own. Like if you want, if you, you it's like me. I've I couldn't envision myself going surfing. I couldn't think of a similarity between it. But 
I guess if I jumped in and bought a thousand dollar surfboard and just went to the biggest wave ever, I'm probably going to be missing out on quite a bit. Die. You do, you die, you just die, you die. <laughs> yeah, there's guarantee it. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll keep we'll keep going. We've covered a lot of the stuff that we were going to talk yeah. about in the first couple of questions. Um, obviously, it's, like I would say, like I'll just go through it quickly. What do you prefer, like preferred styles and techniques of fishing? Johnny, uh, preferred styles lure casting. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't mind jigging. Um, in in theme with this discussion, I don't mind fly fishing. In fact, in my boat, always is a ten weight. Um, be that if I'm chasing cod or if I'm going offshore, so chasing kings or bluefin. Um, if the right opportunity is there, uh, that that fly rod's out. It's it's just not my first passion. That's all. Hmm. Um, yeah, so undoubtedly lure casting. Definitely don't mind a jig, but um, not saying I, uh, I'd never fish with bait, but it would only be a handful of times a year. Yeah, I, I, I bait fished in my holidays. I wanted to feed a King George Whiting. I know how I'm going to get that, and that's not not with lures. Bringing out the squid and pippies. Yeah, 100%. You had the best meal of the year after that. Yeah, <laughs> that's so it. tasty little morsels there. Oh, yes, they are. What about yourself, Andre? Um, I mean, these days I, I'm definitely more fly fishing focused, um, you know, uh, I think just because of what the, the path I've taken over the past sort of maybe six years, I was just crazy obsessed with top water, um, throwing big lures and then kind of learned a few lessons about where my, where I find the enjoyment and it, it's the eat, you know, has always been the thing for me. So top water and even the eat on a jig just that it's a completely different thing, but the eat is where it's at for me. Um, yeah. And I learned that and, uh, you know, John will, well, I'm sure and tell you, I'm, I'm the first guy in when we're in Oman to be like, Hey, let's go through a light tackle because I just like catching shit loads of fish and I love it on top water or, you know, I'm always, I always want to be casting. Um, but I think over the last certainly six or seven years, the fly fishing bug has, has really bitten me hard again. I mean, I have fly fished my whole life. But I, the, I like the, the being able to feel the fish with your, with both hands, if that makes any sense. I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're setting the hook physically with your, with one hand, pulling the line. I don't, it's, there's something about that attraction. And I guess add to that, the fly tying side of it, which is a big part of fly fishing, what can be, if you want it to be, I love to tie flies and it's pretty rad to be able to fish be constantly fishing or involved in your passion for fishing, even when you're nowhere near the ocean or nowhere near the water or it's 10 o'clock at night and you just got home from work or whatever it is, I can sit down at my vice and basically fish in my head or, you know, adapt and learn stuff that I've learned that day or a week ago that, hey, those flies were getting refusals. What were the fish doing? Why were they doing it? I'm not quite... You know, you can go down the, especially the trout guys who go down that whole entomology route of, mm. you know, every single mayfly that hatches and how many tails they've got and what color the spots are on their legs. I let my mates tie those kind of flies. <laughs> <laughs> I like big, nasty shit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think I do still love to throw a lure though. I actually went bass fishing uh, a couple of weeks ago. We were camping and the water, we got to this place to fish and, it was like a small little stream, but it was completely covered with lily pads. And I'd brought a little, you know, tiny little P1 flick stick. And 
my buddy had some of those little topwater frogs, spro frogs or whatever they were. Mm. And man, I had a blast. Just I was like, man, I feel like a kid again. I did so much of that in my youth, flicking little, you know, topwater frogs in the lily pads and catching bass. And uh, yeah, I did a fair amount of chasing uh, yellowtail kings and whatnot around here and, and tuna and things like that as well. So again, I think much like John, if I can cast, that's where it is. That's where it's at for me. Uh, I prefer fish that can't swim too far down. Uh, <laughs> especially like if it's if the water's deeper than 10 meters and i'm not particularly interested in standing with a big whoopee noodle in my hand for yeah. half an hour then give me braid any day of the week i like to feel what's going on but in shallow water yeah and i think that my addiction to certain kinds of fish like bonefish and things like that or gts in shallow water and trigger fish um I won't say I'm addicted to permit yet, but I'm pretty much I'm pretty sure I could get. I've caught a few, but I like fish in shallow water that can go away from me uh, or around me when it comes to fly fishing. Anyway, I reckon. Um, can I? Or everywhere. Oh, sorry, JC, you go. I, I was just going to come back and kind of put a footnote on. You know, lure casting is my thing. Mm. Yeah, it is, but the cream is sight casting. Mm. Oh yeah. And, you know, I'm playing into your fly hands there, Dre, because it's, I yeah, guess, your, your world. But even if it's with a lure, if you can see that fish and put a play for it, that, nothing beats that, hey, be it a fly or a lure. Nothing beats it. Yeah, and I mean, even I've seen of watching your guys sort of, uh, you know, your Murray Cod vids, yours and a bunch of other people. I mean, it's, it's grass is always greener, right? You always watch shit that's not on your doorstep. Yeah. But, I mean... I know you're not necessarily always seeing those fish, but a lot of the time you guys are fishing around structure or specifically targeting like, hey, that stump or whatever, that seam line or something looks good. And to me, that's almost a form of sight fishing. Uh, You know, be it in salt water or in fresh water where you can, you're specifically targeting something for a reason and you can see in your mind's eye, whether it's through experience or, or in whatever, just, having a feeling like that looks right and where it should be. It's almost a sense of sight fishing because you're needing to put a cast where you want it to be, where it needs to be for you to kind of access that fish. So even if you're not seeing the fish, not actually actively targeting a fish you can see, you're targeting a spot where you know a fish should be. So for me, that the sight fishing thing translates not only into casting at a fish you can see swimming, but specifically going, I need to put the lure or the fly there because i know in my mind's eye the fish should be there and when they are it's fucking brilliant in a way dre um, that kind of fishing where it's like you know i need to skip one under these willow trees or i need to put one really tight into that root ball yeah it's its own reward in a way um being able to pull off those casts consistently and not just end up in trouble all the time or missing your casts and if you can add a fish or two from that that's a really good day man Oh, totally, hundred percent. Especially with someone else who doesn't really fish much, or doesn't fish at all. I remember I was fishing in Sweden once of all places. I was there on a marketing trip, and uh, the husband of a, a stylist who I'd worked with a bunch, he was a fisherman. He's like, oh, "I'll take you guys park fishing on you know, that off day or something." And we went hiked in through this you know beautiful typical Swedish forest, and came out into this beautiful little lake in this mountains. And uh, fishing for pike with these heavy, I mean, like, I guess similar to your Murray cod tackle. I mean, they fish big, those big giant jerk baits. And yeah, baits and really big baits. Yeah. 
um, braid and of course little ambassador Abu is the old Swedish one. Yeah. And uh, we saw this sort of maybe 30, 40 meters down the shoreline. It was all weeded up everywhere. But this pike blew up, you know, in a hole in the weeds that was maybe a meter, meter by meter at most. And uh, I, you know, I turned it was, you know, I was fishing the other direction. My, but my business partner at the time who was with me doesn't really fish. And I was like, oh, I'm going to catch that fish. He's like, that thing will never be there anymore anymore i'm like no 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 they're ambush predators it'll be in the same place kind of talking on my ass and put a cast in and pure hail mary i mean like you know like i, I don't attach any of my skill to this at all i just got curly <laughs> the cast landed perfectly in the middle of this pothole in the weeds and that park just blew up on that lure <laughs> and he was like what the hell i can't believe you just did that and of course i was like yeah man i knew he'd be there you know like trying to act cool but it's somebody who's not used to it, you know. Yeah, I'm. I'm so excited to do pike fishing. I've done. I've caught one, like one northern pike in my time. Um, my girlfriend's finished, so I've got the. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've got the opportunity to go to a heap of stuff over there. So it might not be GTs in my next trip, but like as soon as I can get back to Finland, you better believe I'm bringing the, like the ten weights and everything else down there, and I will be. Putting yeah, it's gonna say do it on do it on fly, man. Not on uh, not on casting gear though, because they don't fight worth the shit on casting gear. No, I, like, I, they need to be able to turn their head, and then then you got it. Then they're a good fish. Yeah, Honestly. yeah, yeah. I've got a float tube and everything. I'm going to bring everything. Yeah, probably, yeah, probably, sort of. probably no clothes. My girlfriend will be pissed at me, but that's all right. I'll just... <laughs> There's you floating around this lake naked, freezing your balls off, <laughs> and like just going for it. I uh, want a float tube, man. I want one. They're awesome, man. I oh, um, I want to hit the uh, the Devil Bend EPs with a float tube. That would be sick. Let's do it, Dill. Mm, let's do it. Yeah, well, plenty of been getting caught there on bass vampires on fly. That's for sure. I know that, I know that for a fact. Yeah, it'd just be nice to be able to work a little bit behind the weed beds, and I think a float tube's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll keep, right. We'll, we'll keep fishing at the finest. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a nice place to have a beer as well, sitting in the water yeah. in summer. That's great. All right, we'll, we'll keep going through. Otherwise, we'll never get to the thing that we actually came here to talk about. The last thing that I wanted to talk about before we actually move into the destination, what are your favorite locations that you have fished and if, and like you, the destinations that you want to fish the most? Go. Go, Dre. Go. Uh, I mean, for me, it's it's there's, there's two, I guess, uh, and one is, I think... It, is a, is a, well, I could give you three probably. Um, two, two of them are pretty out there, exotic. Um, uh, but number one would be Southern Oman. It's, it's it's a tough place to explain, and I'm sure we'll go through a lot of why why it's so attractive. And it's not just about size of the, the GTs, which is what so many people see there. It's it's a place that surprised. You know, I first I've done six or seven trips there, I think, and the first time I went. Besides the fishery, there was just so much about the place that surprised me in a way that I had, you know, so positively that I, I, I had no base to come from or it exceeded all spe- expectations in that respect. And I'm sure we'll talk about it a, a lot more. Uh, the other two would be the Indian Ocean atolls. Um, yeah, I mean, they are, if you're a saltwater fly fisherman, it, it's the holy grail. You know, if they had top in there, no one would want to go anywhere else, to be honest. Um <laughs> It's you. 
like any of us, I'm sure you wanted wanting to try and fish as untouched uh, environment as possible, wild as possible. Yeah, and those places certainly feel like they've had nobody walk on them. You know, if you sp- if you're fishing places like Providence uh, Atoll in the Seychelles or St Brandon's Atoll, which is about 400 kilometers north northeast of Mauritius, they just don't see people. And it's a wild, wild, crazy environment. And it, it also because it lends itself to my favorite kind of fishing, wading. I don't really like fly fishing out of a boat. So you've got your feet on terra firma and you're sight fishing to fish in anywhere from ankle to knee deep water. Um, watching a GT push his eyes and pecks out of the water while he's chasing your fly for you know, 10, 15 meters across the flat is pretty good. Um, and the last place would be a place called Buses to India, which I've never actually fly fished. It's a, I only fished, I fished it conventionally, lure fished it, but it's just a wild atoll in the middle of nowhere, halfway between Mozambique and Madagascar. Um, it's unfortunately owned by the French Navy or the French, and they don't like people going there, but there's nothing on it. It's just a deserted, massive, perfect ring atoll. I think it's about 15, 16 miles wide and just a big, perfect ring of chaos. So <laughs> of the places I've been, those are the three I'd, I'd really, you know, would love to go back to as often as possible. Um, in terms of places that I would love to go to, uh, probably Central South America and Australia would be the others, would be the next, you know, I mean, for me, Barramundi, I've got to catch a barra, man. And I want to catch my, well, I want to catch my record. And mm. I want to just, I'd like to explore and get in a, get, you know, get in a cruiser with a tinny and drive until I can't drive anymore. Um, and Central and South America, purely Peacock Bass, Dorado, that environment, those wild jungles, you know, wolf fish. There's so many cool things there that'll hit a fly and hit a lure that I just, I got to do it. I think every fisher in the world could relate to that. Like, I think ever since I was a little kid, I've always wanted to go somewhere deep in the Amazon and catch peacock yeah. and Dorado. Totally. Like, what totally. isn't, what is not appealing about that? It just, it'd yeah. be the most amazing trip you'd ever go on. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I was probably four or five years old when I first saw a picture of a peacock bass, probably mm. in a old. Ask Master Magazine, and it completely changed my life. I was like, what the fuck is that thing? Oh, you see the videos of those things bloody hitting fizz baits and surf, any sort of yeah. surface lure, and it's like yeah. the yeah. most aggressive-looking like yeah. surface take with anything out there in it for like pound for pound. Can't wait to do that one day. Uh, yeah. All right, you're up, John. So I'd say out of my uh, – Oman's my favourite. The, the subject that we're going to talk about here. And I guess I won't get into it too much in this chat because we're going to explore it. But I love Fiji, uh, the, the more remote parts of Fiji. Fiji can be like fairly crap if you go to the wrong places. But um, go remote and it is a pretty cool fishery st- still. But um, one of the cooler places I've ever been is Komodo in Indonesia. Mm. Um in in kind of Indonesia was really the beginning of my whole GT obsession. I, I actually lived in Indo for thirteen months and fished a hell of a lot. Like that that was my formative year in terms of heavy blue water top water fishing. It's where I got to know Mark Harris. It's where I got to know Attic, who's an absolute pioneer in 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 GT popping. And Komodo is 
a freaking like Jurassic Park gets used a lot in fishing. But oh man, it, it's the currents, the upwellings, the you, you can go GT fishing in mangroves. It's just so freaking amazing there. That that was a really um, super super eye opening trip. That one. Um, love to go back there one day for sure. But my my hit list of where to go, like everyone's got big ones, I think, in terms of you know the places we, we want to go. Um, there's a few here that I was meant to go this year. Um, Vanuatu, I was meant to be there last month. And the the entire trip was based around topwater doggies. Not jigging for them. It was going super remote for topwater doggies and uh, deposits down, so you know we'll we'll make that trip happen when we can travel. But um, missed out on that one. The other one that I'm meant to be on in January was to Colombia, South America. Um, peacock bass, like you guys <laughs> were just talking. Um, was going over there with my good mate Seth from the US on a trip that he was leading. But you know, I love my barra. I love my barra trips. You guys are talking about at the minute of the go. I've never fished any of the Queensland impoundments. I've only fished for wild barra in the Territory. They're just cool, man. They are just such cool lure targets. I want to go to the US. Um, I love my swim baiting. I want to target largemouth and smallmouth bass. Um, I want to go there for that, and I don't really want to see much else from America, to be honest. I've been there twice before. <laughs> um, all about the bass. P- all about the bass, it is. Yeah. Um, P&G, haven't been there yet. Um, I want to do both the black bass and, and blue water. I want to go to Cape Cod. I want to go to Italy and Spain, both for bluefin tuna. I want to go to Panama, and that's just my shortlist. <laughs> I love that shortlist. It, it, it'd be that so cruel to say one location, wouldn't it? But I think I, can't. I actually can't do one location. <laughs> no, I don't blame you. But all of those, all of those, I think, have been in my mind for too long. Yeah, well, I th- yeah. I th- I think at this point, Dylan and I are basically set on next September going chasing Barra yeah. up, up in some of the appearance. Yeah. Um, I think that's just one of the go-to things and it's obviously more accessible. And given COVID now, there's never been a better time to explore locally and who knows when. For sure, man. Who knows when we're going other places. Like I've been going all over Victoria at the moment just chasing cod, just trying to explore different waterways, all mm. that sort of stuff. So I think Barra's are on our hit list. But yeah, for me, 100%. I've always loved river stuff, so PNG chasing black bass and Amazon for me are definitely my go-to spots. And then who knows how Sun if Sunday goes well, <laughs> Oman could be on the list. Vanuatu, Fiji, who knows how? We'll go, who, who knows how we'll end up post Sunday? I'll get Iran fairly soon enough. Oh, King! Yeah. Uh, how, how did I leave New Zealand off that list, man? Like I no. go to New Zealand every year. Like seriously. Look. There's so many opportunities, man. Yeah. There's, there's two that I would add to that. I mean, New Zealand <laughs> for, for both the trout, you know, for me, I mean, again, yeah. like if you're, if you're a side fishing river trout fisherman, I mean, the, like there's nowhere that that's the country to, to go to. South Island. And then rooster fish. Mm. You know, I mean, that's the prettiest creature that swims and chasing roosters off the beach on fly in the surf. That's got to be pretty good. I just, in terms of where I would spend my money, I struggle with a single fish species destination. Right. I mean, like, you know, for like a really big investment, I uh, unless I get really hung up on something, I guess. Yeah. Which, Dre, that's uh, like um, targeting PNG black bass. You can, yeah. everything can line up 
and you've spent 10,000 US. And yep. if they get the big rains, forget it. Hmm. Done. It's done. You hear, yes, you hear yeah. trips of that, like the river will rise like four or five metres and it's just like this big brown turbid torrent you can't even launch. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God, I would cry. You know, I know. Inside. And the outside. <laughs> Well, yeah, There's no other way around it. You, you got to go. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps up the introduction, the longest winded <laughs> introduction known to man. <laughs> 56 minutes for those who want to know. <laughs> but, nice uh, intro. <laughs> yeah, but, but, yeah, to be fair, I wouldn't have any other way. And I, I see, I quickly see this as being probably my most, like the most, my most favorite part of the podcast so far. But, we have to get into the destination, and boy, am I keen for this. So, Dill, you know more about well, not Dill, Andre and Johnny. I know nothing, you know, about you know way more about Oman than I do. So, for those listening, where is Oman? Where, yeah, where is it? What's what's the go with Oman? Oman is Middle East, um, basically, sits between the UAE. And uh, so where Dubai is um, and Yemen, um, it's on the Arabian Sea, Arabian Gulf, the Sea of Aden. Um, it's got a pretty long coastline. I mean, if you have a look at it on the map, uh, it's tough to explain now, but it's got a long kind of quite varied coastline um, with multiple, multiple, multiple varieties um, of structure or types of beaches um, and types of offshore opportunities and amazing seasons as well. Like the difference between the North and the South is, is pretty extreme. Um, it's, yeah, it's quite a, it's a, like I said, it surprised me massively because I went there without knowing very much. I'd been in touch with Ed, you know, bef- even before he set up no boundaries um, chatting about things and whatever. And, and I kind of hopped over there with not a hell of a lot of information or knowing what I was going into, but it's, yeah, bang smack in the middle of the Middle East, uh, like I said. So uh, between Yemen and the UAE, takes up the whole coastal or the Gulf of Aden uh, or the Sea of Aden on uh, its east coast. Can't argue with that. I know nothing about it. So I'll take, I'll have to take your word for it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's also for us, for, for me from South Africa, it's great because it's close. Um, I mean, it's, it's relatively close. It's quite a long travel for you guys from, from Australia, but being that it's so close to Dubai and obviously with Emirates Airlines and Qatar Airlines flying out of Doha, there's multiple, multiple flights through that part of the world every day, probably more than anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. So getting there, certainly for me from Cape Town, to Ed's house is 13 hours for me. From That's leaving my own house to arriving in Ed's house is 13 hours. So I fly from here to Qatar, Qatar to Salala, and then that's a done quick step. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, it's like that's a quick flight from like from Australia to that area is about 14 hours. It's out of Australia. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty much for you guys. Yeah, it, it's. Yeah, it, it's that's that's still a quick flight for me. I got to go to Finland to see my girlfriend, so that's just a hop, skip, and a jump. So yeah. I'm not, I'm not too worried about that. But yeah, is it a, is it a safe country? Is it a safe place to be? Yeah, because that's one thing what we always country? hear. Like you hear about the Middle East, and everyone freaks, but you hear so much positive stuff. It's Oman is either the second or third safest country in the world. 
it's like you know i mean i guess because the funny thing is when i the first time i went i was in new york for two weeks sort of th- four or five days before i left for that trip and i was talking to clients you know but that i was seeing about oh you know i'm, I'm going to oman and people were like oh where the hell is that and it's like oh it's in the middle east like, oh fuck it's gonna be dangerous and it's honestly it's one of the safest places i've ever been and I, I, johnny will attest to that and uh it's the Omani people are, are, are incredible, incredibly welcoming. Uh, it's It doesn't have this huge money edge or like vast wealth and vast new money uh, feeling that a lot of Dubai and the UAE has. It's kind of like, I guess, that part of the world was 10, 15 years ago. They've got a hell of a lot of money uh, in their oil reserves. They look after their people incredibly well. Mm. Um the the sultan of oman who i think has been around he was around he, he passed away this year or last year caboose was incredibly good to his people you know i mean they they absolutely adored him and he was very good to his people so they've created an incredibly safe environment it's it's a little bit tweaky going through um customs and immigration because you're going into a place that you don't necessarily know very much about obviously english is not the first language but most mm-hmm. people speak english so it's fine um but it can be quite intimidating initially but it's honestly it's i've you know i'd walk around in that place anywhere and everywhere and feel safe and welcome yeah i'll back that up dre um it's funny my very first trip there i had this like you know image of like oh i might get beheaded you know not really knowing <laughs> it was back in that era when that was happening too um the reality is it's so freaking welcoming we got a bit of a cool story about our first day we stuffed up completely and booked a hotel in the wrong part of salala and we're wandering around like tourists and this guy pulls over in a 200 series land cruiser and you know asks if we need a lift anywhere and we're like be careful be careful you know he, he wants our money it's a, it's a scam be on edge for this guy and anyway we, we accepted a lift from him and he took us to the beach he waited for us he took us uh to the market he took us to get coconuts to drink you know he drove us all around the, the town and at the end of the day he's like you know crown plaza is open now you know you you'll be right to have a beer if you want beer and he took us there and we like you know we broke out our wallets to pay for our tour guide for the day and he's like no 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 he said it's my duty as an omani to make sure that you enjoy this country and he said in fact have you got enough money for your beer because he was gonna he was gonna ante up for our for our entertainment and that that's a bit of an extreme example, but that's my experience with Oman is... Yeah, I can't think of anywhere else you'd get that. Nah, man. Locals giving you beer. Oh. Like, literally, and drove us around for probably six hours, man, and hmm. didn't, want, didn't want a cent. What a legend. Yeah, crazy. You know, we had, Eddie and I had a similar experience driving back from the lodges, um, you know, when we were towing, uh, we were towing one of the boats or we were bringing, to, uh, you know, those vehicles that he has we were i think john you guys went down the coast and we went back through the desert i can't remember what we did right and uh we stopped in the i mean it really is the middle of the desert uh and in a gas station to fill up with gas and ed and i went went inside i mean it's a tiny little hokey gas station I went inside to get a cup of tea and a parata and we were sitting in the shade i was having a cigarette i'm sitting in the shade just outside this little thing waiting and uh Again, I think it was a big 200 series cruiser pulled up. 
guy hooted and the guy inside the shop brought him a, a bottle of water and a bag of chips or something. And then when he walked past, the, the guy from the gas station walked past us and he said, hey, the Armani paid for your you know, dinner, your lunch. And we're like, what? So he says, no, you don't owe me any money. It's been paid for. And we walked over to the guy and said, you know, like, hey, thank you. And he said exactly the same thing that, uh, like John said, is like, welcome to Oman. It's our duty to make sure that you have a great time while you're here and that you looked after and that you are fed and you have what you need. So it's uh, it's quite an amazing environment to experience that because it's it's so unexpected for most people to feel that safe and that welcome in a in a community and a culture that is vastly different from most of ours there's a, a flip side to that it's not um in any way bad but there's the uh i guess the illegal immigrant side of it there's a lot of um mo- they're mostly bangladeshis aren't they dre yeah um, mainly bangladeshi, yeah yeah and they're and uh, bengalis and and they're you know they're poor they're the labor um it, it's almost like there's a class system there of the Omanis with a bit of coin and uh, these all, I think mostly illegal immigrants, you just do all the dirty work for us. So they're, they're not all good guys, but, you know, I guess that's that part of the world, isn't it? But yeah. safe, it is safe, 100%, man, that joint is safe. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, I think it's important, like any country that you travel to, is just respect for their customs, even if they aren't your own customs. It's, you know, you would expect people to, respect your customs and way of working and way of doing things, etc. Yeah. Uh, when they come to your house, you know, it's the kind of thing mm-hmm. is like when you go to somebody's house, you wipe your feet off, you know, yeah, yeah, you yeah. take your shoes off at least or whatever it is. You kind of treat it the same way and not expect things to be the same. You know, uh, you can't go luck walking around town with an open beer, for example. I mean, that would just yeah. be stupid. Yeah. But um, you can get beer at the Crown Plaza. It's certain hours. Like they've got, they've got like a, a period of the day in the afternoon where it's hit beer o'clock, and they take the covers off for the taps and beers on. Yeah. Um, make it. There's a few trips to the Crown Plaza. Yeah, <laughs> We've done a few. We've done a few. Yeah, and off. What's that other club down at the port? I forget what the name of it is, but yeah, there's a few places you can get a drink. Uh-huh, um, yeah. My wife has been there twice, uh, mm. three times. Actually, she's been there three times. Three. And, and she feels completely safe there. Hmm. Well, it's it's awesome to hear that because, like, you do hear so much negativity from that part of the world. But yeah, yeah. It's so nice to hear what it's really like in the positive side. And it just shows yeah. that, like, the bad side gets so like lit up if you want to put it that way. Sometimes, which go, go over the, the border case. into Qatar, and it might not be so friendly. Yeah, yeah, go. it's a little more naughty and controlled. Yeah. Well, although Doha well, is pretty chill, though. I mean, Doha. Yeah. Live and work in Doha and it's mellow. Epic. So, guys, we've got to Oman. I guess the thing everyone's come <laughs> <Got> for. <there. laughs> no boundaries. Yeah. What is it? Who's running it? Let us know. Everything. Big, Big bad Eddie. Eddie. <laughs> Big bad Eddie. Here we go. We're going to be here for a few hours now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think, I, like I said, I first uh, was in touch with Ed. Actually, I think when he was still starting and thinking about put, setting up no boundaries, and I mean, not enough good can be said about the way they've done it. Um, if you get to know Ed, um, John knows, also knows him very well. He he's an OCD machine, yeah. and he 
he puts a hell of a lot of pressure on himself to over deliver things to his standards. Um, you know, he's the kind of man who wakes up every morning and writes a list every single day of stuff that needs to be done and it gets done. And what he's done is he's envisioned something and done everything he can to execute it. And I think he's even possibly even exceeded his own plans in terms of how, how it's put together, how his clients are looked after, how his crew and his team have been built and how much pride they have in what they do, you know? So being based down in Southern Oman, I think was a very important part of how they built the operation. You know, Ed, Ed grew up in Dubai, spent a fair amount of time in Oman, but him and his wife, Angela, that when I think Phoenix was like a year old, um, their son, first son moved down to Shwaymir, which is a tiny, tiny flaspec fishing village on the coast and lived there for a year with Eddie doing all the work, um, cooking, running boats, doing everything until he, he realized what he had there and how he wanted to build it up. So being based down in that part of the world, I think is also important in that they're, they're fishing there every day, fish or well, every day of the season anyway, and working out all the conditions and working out how best to fish all of them, how best to manage the fishery, what conditions they should be fishing for, what mm. techniques, etc. So yeah, they've, I mean, I can't say enough about it. Well, that's a hell of a lot of work that goes into the backbone of that operation. And that, so that's, what, that's what that. separates a good operation from a great yeah. operation. He's gone from, you know, will I set this up with my wife to now having three 33-foot set of consoles, one 45-foot, hmm. a 60-foot mothership, um, lodges that are capable of holding, I think, 16 anglers and a staff of like a dozen maybe. It's insane. Yeah. And it's all off his own graft and really good management of the fishery. I think you'd be enormously proud. Um, I, I can't undersell my relationship with the guy. He's one of my very best friends in life. And um, I know how freaking hard this year has been for him. Um, no clients. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the guy's a amazing man and he's he's pulled off something uh, i'm envious of personally yeah it's also i mean oman is currently open again yeah um, it is now so yeah i've got this there's you know there's a bit of if anybody is looking into you know going and reading stuff online and whatnot there is some information misinformation at the moment about people having to quarantine etc and stuff like that but there isn't um, it's like a lot of places around the world. I chatted to Eddie yesterday about it. It's, uh, you basically would need to arrive. I think you'd arrive you've got to arrive with an egg test. Um, and you have to stay. And I think they test you upon arrival as well. These new lamp tests, which is like, you know, it's quick, but you have to stay one night until you get your results that you tested negative and then you can carry on and go on to the trip. So it's pretty easy and re- relatively, uh, quick, um, because you know, some of the embassies are saying you've got to isolate for seven days, but it's not. Another thing is also that now the tourist visas are free. Johnny, I don't know if you knew that. No, I mean, we no, used to have 30 reals or whatever it was. Um, if you're staying for less than 10 days, uh, the visas are free for tourists. Yeah, okay. They've, they've made a change there then. Yeah. yeah, I think they're trying to open it up, you know. Yeah. You had a few more people coming back over. Yeah, I mean, it's not like tourism is a big thing for them, but it's it is an element of of uh, 
you know, I mean, a lot of people travel there from from the UAE as well. There's good surf down in the south, so it's got a lot of like expats oh. that live in Dubai that come down and surf. Yeah, never knew that about that. So, what main like fishing would be their main tourism, I'm guessing. Then uh, they've got some luxury travel. I mean, it's it's an especially mm. southern Oman. It's one of the oldest places in the world, like the Book of Job. I mean, if you're religious in any way, there's the the it's kind of all Job is from Salalah. And there's all these tributes to him and things there. I mean, I don't know the entire history of it, but it's taken me and showed me. It's the beach. If you like beaches, I mean, the beaches are just—they're ridiculous. They are, they are. absolutely mind-bending. It's, I think um, diving, diving, diving is a big one. Yeah, you yeah. often see dive boats when you're down in Southern Oman at the Halayanets, where we do the bulk of the fishing. Is there's often a dive boat or two there. And I think a lot of them are Europeans, Dre. I'm not sure, but no, those are someone scared of shit though. <laughs> they like strap on a speedo and go. But yeah, uh, yeah but I think those mothership uh, the scuba operations have been operating in that area for quite a long time. Yeah. yeah. So there's you know, it's like beautiful hotels and some really fancy, you know, like that. The one next door, the Crown Plaza, Johnny. That, that uh, is it. A, not Anantari's. Yep. Is it? Yep. Anantari. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's some beautiful um, places. There's the desert's amazing. So they've got all these desert experiences, um, and it's an incredibly old part of the world. The history is 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 amazing. It's also got um, Salala has. I think it's one of the largest allied uh, military bases in the world. So all of your, it's the US and UK, I think I could be wrong, but I know there's a lot of US. Definitely, so definitely British. Yeah, I think it's both men. British as well, so it's both. Yeah. Um, the Allied bases is is in Salalah. I mean, it's a massive port with, you know, Navy and, and Air Force and everything there. So they've got a huge expat population that lives there, um, like permanently enlisted folks as well as a lot of consultants and, and stuff like that. So there's a big expat community, especially down in the South. It sounds like an awesome place. And like one, obviously the fishing is incredible, but two, like I love beaches. I love history as well. I'm not, I'm not overly religious, but there's still something to be said by looking into, into all that sort of history as well. So, oh, and It's always so cool to check out that sort of stuff when you're in a wild place. Cause it's not like you'd always get the chance to go over to Oman and, You'd always want to leave a few days either side of your trip to check it out, no matter where you are. Yeah, exactly. And that gets so yeah. overlooked. Yeah, you're right. What, what What are the shortest trips you can do with no boundaries, and and the longest trips? Like, what What are the trips set up like? The, the trips are divided into, uh, unless they've changed with the mothership, they're divided into um, an arrival day, then six days of fishing, and then your departure day is the new group's arrival day. Yeah. And that's just the ongoing cycle through the fishing season. So if you were like, you know, oh, I just want to come for three days, I don't know how that would work. I don't know how you'd be accommodated. Um, mm. Do you know, Dre? I don't I think. think I think it depends on the season as well, John. Yeah, it would. Uh, with that 40-foot, what's this 40-footer called? With the, the black current. Um, yeah, black current. Both he moved, and with the, the idea with the mothership as well, with notice temptress, is that they would move her up towards Muscat or Fujairah or somewhere up in that direction in during the the Karif season for the yellow um, yeah. and he was yeah and there there it's more sort of accessible potentially I'd have to get the exact details from Eddie but 
in yeah. terms of day trips or two, you know, like come down, fish one full day or fish two full days and bail again because there you just, you know, you're running out of one port pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. So say when that's on, you could literally fly in, do a, a night a night on the yellowfin, literally like. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is a bit different because you're running out of a city. Yeah, yeah. for sure. That's real cool. But well, I guess but, we should really. You've got massive yellow. You've got massive yellowfin on top order. You know, yeah. I mean, and a shit ton of them. Oh, and, and, and I guess for a lot of people out there that are thinking of doing an Oman trip, is it like what's the cost rough? Like obviously you can't give me like exact cost, but like what are the rough costs associated with it? John from like from here in Australia, and also Andre, like what are the flights and stuff costing you as well? So in terms of the uh, go dry. Yes, no, I was just going to say, for me, flights are, are pretty cheap. Um, like, I've never paid more than, I got lucky, but I don't think I've paid more than like 650 US for a flight from here, there and back, which is makes it incredibly viable for South Africans, you know, like for, from this part of the world. It's pretty cheap to get to. Yeah. I think, Johnny, you guys have obviously got heavier flights and things like that. Yeah, we're about 1,800 Australian is kind of the average. I might have got as cheap as 16 once, but, yeah, roughly 18. I don't know. Is, is flying going to be dearer after COVID or not? I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> we, had, we had a few people in the shop today. They were saying they just booked just – I can't remember what. Port, what uh, it was Port Douglas? Yeah, they were going to Port Douglas and they said they just had to fork out 1400 bucks each for flights to get up and go on a charter next week for four days well, GT popping. Yeah, Port Douglas, though, is like a flight then a flight. Like yeah. the, the flight from Cairns to Port Douglas would be a small plane. So, hmm. yeah. Yeah, your costs kick in. There's those little puddle jumpers, unfortunately. Yeah, for sure. With a stranglehold on it, you can just charge what you want. Whatever they want. That's it. And what about the trip itself? Like how how much are we looking at forking out for a trip like that? Seasonal depends. Like there's a premium placed on the prime GT months, the monster GT months, where the I guess the results have stacked up year in, year out. I know Eddie puts a, a bit of a premium on that, and I think they're 5,000 US, don't quote me. Mm. Um, and I think more your standard dates, which can be, you know, year to, year in year out, or week in week out, can sometimes be better. You don't know. Um, I think they're four thousand, but yeah. uh, everything everything there is US dollars in terms of the prices yeah. that you get. Um, in I, terms of what I you have to check what is what notice what the difference is with no. I mean, I haven't been on the mothership yet because I've yeah. been back for a year and a half, so yeah, I'm not yeah. sure what the pricing is on notice. I think it's similar, Dre. Like, might be a marginal um, fee more there, but not not you know. Not the kind of thing where it becomes what, a deal breaker. What I could look at it as, guys, is for the value for money is exceptional. You know, I mean, like $5,000 is nothing to sneeze at um, in, in for anybody. But in terms of the fishery and the service and what you get and where you are and the sort of if you come at it from the other side and the knowledge of just how much it takes to run an operation in that part of the world and that remotely – it's you know value for money i don't know you know anything that even comes close i mean i'm looking at if i compare it to you know the indian ocean atolls um you know if you want to go to providence if you want to go to cosmo for a week um it's fifteen thousand us and mm. you still got to fly there you still got to buy all your tackle you still got to buy all your booze and you still got to tip all your guards mm. you know and you got to stay two nights in seychelles on the way there and two nights in seychelles on the way out i mean you 
you're looking at like 22, 23,000 US dollars. That's a shitload of money for six days of fishing. Granted, you could have a trip of your life, but you could also have a red crab tide and you see one GT in a week. So, you know, but no boundaries is like that whole area is for me is, is good value. Really, really good value. Well, it's, it equates pretty much. Uh, if you do your US dollar conversions, that's about the price of a Great Barrier Reef liverboard trip. That same. Hmm. Far out. I don't know which one I choose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, because like, I've always, I've looked at trips like like down at Amazon, um, like chasing peacock bass, also ones chasing chasing dorados, Seychelles, all that sort of stuff. And in terms of what you're talking, that sort of sits in between a lot of those, and then say a trip to Christmas Island as well. So like, yeah, it it sounds like one of the more like almost one of the more affordable trips, um, and especially considering the premium times of five thousand US, it's definitely definitely sits in that affordable range for people to like and especially if it's just a once-off trip of a lifetime oh, if it's a once-off of course it's yeah. it's, it's not so bad every, even every second year it's like a second third year it's 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 more than an affordable trip where yeah. it's a problem is you get people like me with me and my wife and we want to do it twice a year <laughs> i was going to say it's not a once in a lifetime trip you can go once but that doesn't make it a once in a lifetime trip you can go <laughs> you're once. gonna go once but you're yeah. gonna go yeah, yeah. It's called the introductory gateway trip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the gateway drug in the fishing community. Yeah. <laughs> well, guys, we've talked about getting there and everything. Let's jump right into the fishing. So I guess we'll leave the best till last, but I reckon we start. So inshore light tackle, like for me, I've always loved my light tackle. And this is one thing I've always noticed about Oman is just the array of cool species, many of which I wouldn't even know the names of or have it. I probably haven't even seen a photo of them until like the last year or two, but there is in terms of everything from brim to amberjack, dorado and the shari or what we call spangled emperor, there just yeah. seems to be something very special they have over there. Yeah, it's yeah it's funny. A, they add up. The species add up, don't they, Dre? They... Yeah, totally. And also, I mean, again, going back to finding a fishery that I had no idea existed when I went there, you know, I went there all juiced up on, on – uh, on GTs, hmm. and I think I think I took one light tackle rod with me. I took off, I had like one PE three Berkeley Air nine foot extra heavy, and uh, and just you know, and I took like five GT or four GT rods or something. Whereas now when I go back, I take two GT rods and like eight light tackle rods just because this I love that light light tackle intro stuff. And until you touched on species diversity. And just in terms of just how much bigger they get than than everywhere else that I've seen them, you know. I mean, the the shari, the blue sp- the spangos, get big, and they seem to fight a lot harder there than anywhere else that I've caught them. I mean, they're fast. You know, everyone's mentioned how, like, I was chatting to Aaron when he fished last year, and he was saying they're one of the most filthy, dirty fighting things. They're, they're, Apparently, they claim plenty and plenty of little stick baits and poppers. Oh, and everyone so everything there hits the top water, which is yeah. bizarre. You know, we get. They have a lot of fish that we have here on our east coast and Mozambican coast, um, like the Grunter and the you know what you guys call Taylor, hmm. um, and but we don't catch Grunter in forty meters of water on top water. You know we shit. So they get them come up that far over there. That's them. mad. Yeah. No, I mean just you know in the same shoal you're catching in forty meters of water you're catching. Um, what do you guys call those things? Mac tuna, you call them? Yeah, like yeah. big Mac tuna. Huge tailor, uh, 
big shari, the huge spangled emperors, the biggest rainbow runner I've ever seen anywhere. Um, and long then tiles. Jack will pop up in, in that, the long tail will pop up in that. And then you've got this grunter in 40 meters of water, which is a bottom feeder that's like spawns. <laughs> I didn't even know they got the, they got them fishing. Comes up the there and like there's a four or five kilo grunter smashes your stick bait. <laughs> oh, yeah. And like we, we did things on? like top top water mulloway on offshore reefs or yeah. cob as they yeah. call them. Yeah. yeah. What? Well, you know, man. Yeah, bloody yeah. oath. Yeah, man, they get big there too. What, why do we even bother with it down here? Yeah. <laughs> Would you yeah. imagine if someone got like a top water mulloway? Like the the concept is like the, the concept seems so foreign. Well, well, like it happens. Yeah, it's slowly starting to get it right in the history. It takes yeah, a well, lot of time and effort, but it's time of year, time of being in the right place for a thousand islands. Yeah, right. well, it, it, it's it's starting to happen a little bit down here, a bit more unspoken than a lot of other people as well. But like that's off topic. A whole rabbit hole that we mull away yeah. in Cobb. That's a rabbit hole for another podcast. Don't go there, Mitch. Oh, well, well, <laughs> oh it took two and a half hours. Great two and a half hours. If anyone wants to jet back, I think it was like episode three or four. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes. but I mean, look, yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of thinking additional species there. You've got, you know, from a from a fly angler's perspective, you know, before we get to the big fish, the jeets and things, but in terms of like the off the beaches you you can you know you start casting to bream brim whatever bream they're bream they're my side of the world they're bream hmm. but they uh <laughs> you know you start casting those on on sort of like ocean flats like surf flats they're coming yeah. in in shallow water to eat crabs to eat minnows you get them on poppers um you've got three species of permit i believe so you get the africanus you get the um blocky so that's the indo-pacific and the africanus permit so, and then you get what was one. mine, Dre? Well, looky, yours is an Africanus, which is the Africanus. bigger one. Because you got I a mean, on a jackfin, didn't you, JC? Uh, I was on a hero. On a hero, yeah. but on like a hundred and fifty gram. Yeah, that's <laughs> Here, everyone is throwing like floating crab patterns and stuff. Can't get one to eat in a million casts, and bang, 150 gram herring down the hatch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's and, a, is, have they're a completely different fish there. That they are, is, you know, they chase a, bait fish. Fish eater, they catch them quite a lot around the the inshore bait balls on sinking stick boats. Yeah. But then, also, I mean, they've had sessions where they get sort of six or seven or eight in a morning session around a bait ball on poppers, like on pure poppers, not stick what? boats, just pure what? top water poppers and big fish. You know, you go there alone just to have a permit of like 10, 12 kilos. You know, I mean, they're big fish. Johnny, how big was yours? 12, 15 kilos, maybe? It was it was a tank, wasn't it? And that that was a huge. You try to shake it off for like the first 40 seconds of the I, I, I opened the bail arm on it. <laughs> Get it off. That was another bloody queen. I'm surprised you did that. You know, like a, the queenies when they die, like if a queenie dies for some reason, because they're a bit of a, a, I mean, they're huge, those queenies there, but when you've got PE10 GT tackle, <laughs> that's what you're chasing, they're a bit of a pest. But now these, this, and when a queenie dies, they kind of go that yellow color. You know, they when a dead queenie is yellow, you know, if you ever see one hanging on a board or something. And I remember looking over and seeing this like yellow coming up. I was like, ah, oh, fuck, it's dead already. And then it's just like, shit, permit. John, uh, John suddenly got very delicate with his. <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden you back your drag off and you're babying it. And you're... <laughs> what a person. Yeah, so there's, but I mean, there's your, your permit in the surf there as well. There's some other weird species that that uh, there's the the dofar parrot, yeah, um, yep. which is this just 
you know, like a lot of parrotfish, ridiculous looking thing, insane colors, crazy dirty fighters. And they come certain times in certain places, you know, they come up thick and you, you're targeting them like you target tuskies or, or blue bastards or something like that on crabs in the reefs. Um, there's that. What about the broom tails, Dre? Even I can catch them on fire. Yeah, there's broom uh, there's the two bar bream as well. Um, there's, I mean, there's a ton of shit. Huh? All your trevally so species, all of them, yeah, goldens, uh, black tip, spot. Yeah. Are they like co- like cobia as well? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> are they cobia? My God. <laughs> You're making things. That- we nearly lost John. To a cobia, I don't think you'd, if you'd hook that fish, John. I don't think you'd be alive. Anymore. I reckon I would have gone water skiing, mate. You would have been done. Oh dear! I was standing behind John. We were, you know, throwing for cheats. I can't remember which. I don't know if we were off soda or Palantir. Off Monster Rock, man. Somewhere between the two. Yeah. And uh, John had made a cast. You know, being shorter, he can stand on the front end. <laughs> and uh, made a cast, and I, I cut. You know, we were fishing with Sam Colvin and S. Colv, and I just remember John going, oh, gee, 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 and looking up and seeing this, just what I thought was a shark at first look. That lie in the end, yeah. You don't see a lot of sharks in Oman. There's not many. Just pushing, like, after his popper. And I think we both realized at sort of the same time, I stepped up to look, and we both realized at the same time that it was a cobia. And, I mean, that thing was wider than you. I mean, like, you know, you've got big shoulders. John, but I was looking at from behind and I could kind of just like see the peck fin sticking out on either side of you and it followed right, 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 almost under your rod tip before it decided not to eat. But if oh. you'd hooked that thing that close on GT Tackle, mate, you would have got over the front of that boat. It, it was going to be some kind of fight. Is all oh. say. <laughs> you jammed a hook into that thing running like 14, 15 kilo of drag on strike. Yeah. Here you go on scheme. <laughs> it did, did both one of 62 kilos one of the guys got one of uh yeah the commercial ops got one of 62 kilos 62. on a jig yeah that's a big cobia man a no big. i didn't even know they got that big that's intimidating to say the least yeah it is. It's, you know it's 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 as wide as a jeet you know it's just massive yeah, yeah. frightening looking thing that's there's some other funny abnormalities there they get mangrove jack um, but on they got that cool like freshwater lagoon, don't they? Yeah, in in the uh, while we were uh, wadi, um, there's all <laughs> kinds of stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> while we were wadi, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's it's just it's amazing. I, I think it's worth chatting about boys about like you might be getting to it, but why are these fish so big and you know? so plentiful and i think it all comes back to the ocean currents there right at the top of the indian ocean which is where mm. it is and the karif they have which is a, a a cold water a cold water event monsoon and it's it goes for a few months since you know essentially the the southern oman off season but you get a situation there when it comes out of the um uh, Karif into what is very hot weather. You've got this cold water heating up, and the the ocean is so freaking alive with bait. Yeah. Um. The sardine run just it's like literally that unbroken line of sardines that just goes for 
who knows how many miles. Hmm. And you've got there coral and cold water kelp in the same environment. Um, there's a, I don't know, pretty unique event happening below the surface that just creates this bait that obviously attracts all these bloody predators in and they get so big and fat. Mm-hmm. And I have, have I described that, Dre? Yeah, so, I mean, 100% is, the, the, you know, the, one of the big things for me was in it, it told me because after the first couple of times I fished them on, I always fished at the end of the Karif. Um, so I always fished early season, like opening week. So uh, September, October. It's four or five years that I did it, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it's amazing as well, flying into Salala and you think, okay, I'm going into the Middle East, I'm going into the desert and it's green everywhere. Yeah. And it's green, it's like green hills of Africa green. And then you drive up out of Salala into the desert and you can literally put your one foot in greenery and then your left foot is just desert as far as you can see. So it's this very isolated coastal band of maybe at most 10 kilometers that goes inland. Most of it's probably shorter. Like John says, it's, it's basically just a massive onshore monsoon. And the average temps during summer in Salala are only sort of 25 degrees, whereas everywhere else it's 50, 55 degrees because it's cold or muggy and it pisses with rain in this short little uh, probably 100 kilometer stretch of coast at most yeah so it brings this massive upwelling of cold water nutrients as john mentioned and the water temperature drops massively mm. it's i think it's the only one of the only places in the world that has 100 percent resident humpback whales they don't need to leave at any point to find calm water to carve and nutrient-rich water to feed they just hang yeah. up it just comes to them and then it gets calm and they can chill out one of the largest concentrations of sea turtles in the world. The life is exceptional. And I think it also has to do why so many of the things grow bigger is because the bait that they feed on. Yeah, there's so always well- bait available. Like the fusiliers there are ridiculous. Yeah. You know, if you foul hook a, a fusilier on GT tackle and you're ripping a stick bait through a shoal of fusies, I mean, it kind of goes. I'm used to them being like the size of my hand and you get one that's as long as your forearm. Um, everything yeah, just grows weirdly big and I think it is to do it, it, it's a unique system and that whole thing like John mentioned the coral grows for half the year and then cold water like bull kelp grows for the other half of the year and you see it in the if, you, if you're there in early season you can see all this kelp sort of dying off as the water temperature rises and if you go end of the season there's no kelp if you go through March, April, it's all sort of died off. And then when the Karif kicks in, obviously kelp being so fast growing, it grows in again. But then the coral grows at the same time. It's, it's a mad place. Again, goes back to my whole thing of just how surprised I was by everything I found there. Similar to Dre, um, I guess I've done trips both sides of the Karif like a lot, probably equal. Um, so I've done September, October, March and April, which are literally the two ends. And... Yeah you can list the species that will be available during each of those months. Like early season, the September, October, it's amberjack time. Yeah, and probably. I can promise you in April, you will probably not encounter an amberjack. It's you might very, get one on the deep jig, but that's about it. Yeah, you might get one on the jig, right, but not on, on the shallow roofs where you can get them top water. It's... I don't know. Yeah, it's not completely unique in the world, I don't think, in that way, but it, it's there's not many places like it, hey. It's, yeah. It, 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 like, it just sounds like the melting pot of all things pelagic. Yeah. Well, you're getting, like, that sort of 
tropical temperate crossover too by the sound of it like in fish wise like yeah. getting getting aj's of that size in the same zones you can be getting gts like. right on the same and roof man on the same roof and then you've got i mean you do have your big demersal species too this i mean early season we you know we smashed the snapper which are very similar to your red snapper john you reckon those yeah the they're, they're not the same are they, are they the same as dentex or very similar like I thought that they, initially, I thought they'd be a dentex because it looks pretty yeah. similar. They, they, they to me, they sit somewhere between the two. They're mm-hmm. a little right. bit different in the dorsal fin to our snapper for sure. Well, we'll call them snapper for now, but that's yeah, they are, yeah, that's the they're, they're, they're amazing. But there's you know there's those I've only ever caught those early season. Yeah, you don't have that huge plague of those giant queenies uh, in the early season. Correct. We've caught them inshore, like, but not those just ginormous things yeah um the waters to well often inshore you get that slightly greener water yes uh what else have we caught at that time of the year and there's always mahis always always mahis and often yeah often inshore like you'll always get you know in in the uh the oceanic water you'll always get them but so often when you're inshore bream fishing um you'll, you'll get queenies there and the mahis as well i mean you're spinning along a cliff where the water's shallow it's like two three meters deep and yeah. you what do you get in mahi mahi out of the white water and smash and whatever 100 man every streak time. of yellow comes oh, rocketing honestly smash. talking about it you almost get more juiced up about the light tackle options and thinking about the heavy stuff now like it just seems yeah. like yeah. Limit, limitless options here Crazy, but I think it's, it's, it's an important thing of like people who go, you know, is to is to not, yes, the GT and you know John will tell you more about the GT fishing, but it's it's not just a GT destination, and no. you're doing yourself a yes. I mean, if you have this desire to chase the biggest GTs in the world, and far none, you're not going to find anywhere that's going to deliver size like Oman can. Mm. Um, and a real shot at like a 60 kilo fish, you know, a 50 kilo fish there is like, oh yeah, it's a 50. Whereas most places <laughs> the rest of the world, you're freaking out. That's but amazing. it's still a bloody big fish and it's a, you, you know, you take a photo. But mm-hmm. I mean, I remember the first cheat I caught there was about, I think about 30, maybe high 30s, low 40s, which, well, maybe high 30s, which is a, at the time was by far my biggest GT. And I got it within 15 minutes of the first day fishing there on my first trip. And they didn't even want to take a picture. <laughs> Dude, everybody sit the hell down and take a picture of this damn fish. I'm so yeah. stoked. You know? I only realized afterwards why. But, <laughs> you know, these guys who go there are obsessed purely with the GT fishing, and I understand. That, but if the condition, like anywhere, if the conditions are not optimal or you're not physically fit enough to sit and chase GTs, all day in 40 degree heat and let's be honest there are not a lot of people who can do that when you throw in mm-hmm. pe 10 200 gram lurt the you know like just discounting what is probably the best all around light medium tackle i mean we're not just talking about light tackle like throwing pe1 you everything from pe1 or p.8 to pe5 you're throwing everything in that whole range and the you can catch fish until the arms fall off which is mm-hmm. amazing and it would be f- foolish to kind of discount that or not go prepared for it and just freak out about the jigs. Can I jump in there? I've known a few mates and a few customers that have gone there with a probably uh, too big of a focus on the GTs and they can sometimes be not on. Like Hmm. 
the, probably I feel like it's the, the worst thing is if the trip before you smashes, which tends to get you excited, I actually reckon it's a bad sign yeah. because, you know, all yeah. fish have their cycle and it's like, ah, oh, if they've smashed, they've got to have, you know, a, an off week and you, you don't want that to be your week. It's it's not shooting fish in a barrel when you're ch- targeting yeah. these, you know, world-class GTs. It is not. And it's, not said, a, it's not a numbers destination. No way, man. It's not. You can, you can go there and catch 15. You can go there and catch 30. But it's a few and far between those kind of days. But, you know, I think that's an important thing because it's easy to, sorry to jump in, John, but I think it's a lot it's yeah. an easy thing for people that just think, oh, I'm going to Oman, I'm going to catch a 50 kilo Jeep. I've still never caught a 50 kilo Jeep there and I've been there seven times. Hmm. I, I've, I've seen guys. I've got a 7 and a 48, but yeah. it, like that. It's not a multi, you know, it's not like John says, not shooting fish in a barrel when it comes to jigs. And I think that's part of the attraction as well Is it's not like just going somewhere where it's like a farm pond where you just, you know, the fish is there, you're going to catch it. You still have to work for it, which what, makes what, it more desirable for me anyway. What I say to people, Dre, is go there, do this, don't stop casting, and there's a really, really good chance that you will get the chance at the fish of your lifetime. What happens is up to the fish and it's up to you and it's up to probably a bit of luck, but you'll get a chance. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah you, you, you're closer to it there than you would be pretty much anywhere else. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of the best approach to it. Like I'm in the right place. To do yeah, 100%. It. Because you're in the right place doesn't mean it's going to happen, but, you know, you're, you're closer to achieving that than anywhere else on it. Yeah, you can't go balls blazing thinking, I'm going to Oman, there's 50 kilo GTs everywhere and think it's just going to happen and you're going to have four casts and hook one. Like Deal of, of known customers that have like, I'm going to get one first on this popper and then yeah. I'll get one on this for you. And, and I'm like, dude, can you change your outlook? Yeah. <laughs> because you are, you're yeah. setting yourself up for a shit trip and I've yeah. seen it happen. I've seen it happen. Like I, I had the same thing like when I first got into, say, the top water tuna down here like quite a while back now. And you'd be like, oh, yeah, you just drive up to a bus stop that you'll see when you're just driving along in the middle of nowhere and you throw a lure and the tuna will eat it. Mm. And you're like, <laughs> you learn. There is so much more to it. But at the end of the day, it's up to the fish. Will they show? Will they eat? Are they going to be fussy? Yep. But if you cast, you dedicate it. Dedicate yourself to the cast and it will happen. Yeah. What do I say? <laughs> Yeah, you, you, oh, man, that frustrates the hell out of me. You speak to people. We, we're digressing, but it frustrates me where you say to people they're, they're committed to getting a, a top water tuna and they take their trolling gear and out they go and, you know, at the end of the day you say, how'd you go? Oh, yeah, we got half a dozen fish. Yeah, on the cast. Oh, no, they didn't bust up. Yes. Oh, would you, would you just heading. change your whole attitude? Leave that <laughs> trolling gear at home. And set about the task, man, because that's yeah. what it is. It, like, it was the exact... kings here on, on flat. If you want to catch them on flat, don't take the spin gear, man. Yep. Yeah. It was, yeah, the, the same as my transition to fly fishing. I just, I, I went like 12 months basically where I didn't pick up any conventional gear at all. And my catch rates of fish was at an all time rock bottom. But like every fish that I caught was far more like, like far yeah. more rewarding than anything else, and yeah, and I think that goes through all all facets of fishing. Is if you want to fish done in a specific way, or you want that specific fish, you just keep working your ass off until you get it. Mm. Yeah. All right, we'll keep we'll keep going. 
There's so much more that we could talk about, but like Andre, we got you on here for the sort of the fly fishing aspect of it all. Because yeah. if you haven't checked out his social medias and seen what he's up to, you're living under a rock. But um, <laughs> obviously you 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 pulled out the fly rod a few times at Oman, yeah. Yeah, not as much as I'd like to, because the bulk of my trips initially were when I was purely focused on you know on conventional gear, and it was also during a period where I think Ed was still pretty much investigating the fly fishing side of things. And I think, you know, it's still an amazing thing about Oman is how, even though he's been running there for whatever it is, eight, nine seasons now, he's still discovering new fisheries and new places and, and new methods to sort of, or species even that are desirable and targetable. So, but it's a, I wouldn't say it's an easy fly. It's not like, it's not like Seychelles where you're fishing like these skinny flats that are e- relatively easy to fish, you know, things like bonefish and whatever. Um, it's you're fishing in the surf, you're fishing in bays, you're fishing on rocky ledges and things like that. So for me, the massive appeal of that is the, the challenge versus the reward that it offers. Um, you know, the chance to catch permit on fly in the surf, you know, not rather than just on a perfectly flat, flat, you, you, chasing these things in rolling waves or swimming in sideways like that on the, you know, on their sides to eat ghost crabs and whatnot. The chance at those dofar parrots, um, grunter on top water, which is ridiculous, uh, huge tailor. Then obviously your trevally species, if you're on the boats, you know, you've actually got a shot at, at like big amberjack as well as your, your trevally species. And then for me, the real possibility, I mean, it's, look, it's a Hail Mary, but you could, there's a chance of 145 centimeter GT from the beach or from having your feet on terra firma in Oman, more so than I think anywhere else. Like Seychelles, you'll see more fish. And I mean, somebody got a 141 centimeter, 142 centimeter on Cosmo last week, which is the biggest I've seen taken on fly tackle anyway. But I think it was hooked from a boat, but still, you can sidecast, and we know where it is. There's a place there where you can sidecast to fish that could, you know, well exceed 50, 55 kilos standing on a beach. Uh, there's so many places in the world that you can do that. And that's what I want to do. That's my mission. I'm going to, I know that, I know where the spot is. John knows what I'm talking about. And I will sit on that fucking beach for three days straight with an umbrella so that I don't die. <laughs> and a carton of cigarettes and uh and a cooler you know, full of and, beer <laughs> yeah well no i probably i'd only start drinking beer after 12 o'clock maybe but the, uh, um do, do you know that that circumstance that you're talking about i'm, I'm sure you know this but nate on yeah. our last refreighters trip got refused by a handful of giants on that trip on that exact st- uh, stretch that's why I want to go there with a different fly. Yeah, I've, I've got the right, I've got the pattern for it. It's just a, and it's one of the few places where I think because you can hook the fish and, and elevate yourself and get out onto the end of that rock, you know, like stack it. Yeah, at least keep the keep a bit of line out of the water. You say, stand a chance, man. Maybe yeah. 80, 90 meters before they can really. I mean, there's coral heads everywhere, but I think you've got a little bit of a gap. Yeah, and I reckon if you if you went with the right gear and you you got you're just gonna have to get very very lucky, and the right gear, the right hook, I got the right rods, got the right everything else. That's just a question of like putting myself in the right place and putting the right fly there. It, it sounds like if you're gonna sit on the beach with a 
box full of beers, that that's probably luck probably is going to decreasingly be on your side. So, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's a that for me, like I would the the attraction to that part of the world on on fly is much more to do with like the permit and the big shad or the big tailor and the big um the parrots and things like that but i do have a little bit of a i'm not like a trophy hunter guy but i do have a little bit of an obsession with with two gts and one of them is on st brandon's uh off uh, off mauritius just because I've seen him and I've had him eat my flour and it's, it's the biggest GT I've ever seen, um, certainly in shallow water. And he ate the flour and just didn't stick. Like oh. four meters off the rod tip, if that. I just watched the big bucket go. Oh, Ooh. my God. And I watched my flour go in and out of his mouth. Out again. Yeah, I nearly died. But anyway, that one <laughs> and, and just the fact that I know that that a really big – GT. I mean, much like that, that, you know, that trip that we did, Johnny, where we first targeted them, where you got your massive fish from the stones, you know, like the. Heck up with that trip, man. <laughs> I didn't sleep very well, but it was good. Didn't, didn't but, sleep um, a week. <laughs> I didn't sleep at all. But, uh, the, you know, the being the first people, whatever we were first or not, but the first to sort of fish that area and fish it successfully from the stones with popping gear. And then to be able to then take that one step further and target one of those true Omani cheats because the GTs, they are different. They're fatter and wider and angrier. They're just gnarlier creatures so than nice. they are. The little pretty boy ones that live on the flats and the Seychelles with no scars and, you know, like, like, <laughs> like the catwalk model, whereas the ones in Oman are much more like gangster birds, you know? Yeah. And they're square. So, this, yeah, it's like a it's like a tuna and a GT put together, and then just got more angry and got t- you know like if there were a human <laughs> that had tattoos and a lot of piercings and yeah, just oh, be like, not that I've ever yeah. seen one in the flesh, but you see the front on photos of them with their big peck fin sticking out, and these they, they're like a bus. They are really they're huge. to them, so to be able to try and toggle one of those on fly successfully with my feet on the ground, oh yeah, yeah. I'll have a, a very happy moment all by myself in the shade. Yeah, Dre, from from the the shore, that experience would be freaking unbelievable. From a boat, not enjoyable at all. No, I mean, I, I think it's... the up and down on that fish. Yeah. You know, look, the gear can handle it. Um, you know, I have a lot of faith in heavy fly rods. You know, there's a lot of pull and, and what you can put on a fly line, the, the pressure, uh, Mitch, I'm sure you agree, like... The pressure that a fly line puts on a fish in the water is is vastly underrated. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, catching cheats on the flats in, you know, even a pretty good sized fish, well, for fly tackle anyway, but if you would equate it to like fishing with P4 or P5, you'd get a drilling, you know, because yeah. the braid, the, the pressure in the water, the line cuts through the water, there's no drag on, on the fish, but a 12 weight fly rod and a big thick heavy fly line you can put a lot of pressure on a fish i'm not saying that you can put enough pressure that you, know, you wouldn't <laughs> smoke by a 50 kilo fish off the beach but i think it's doable mm, yeah and, and is that what you throw them 12 weights or would you go like heavier um i think if they built a fishable 14 weight or 15 weight but to be honest i need to be able to deliver the cost 
And I, again, mm. it's not going to be something where it's not, you're not blind casting. You know, I'm not throwing that thing all day. It's going to be, it's, it's, I'm going to be sitting for five hours waiting for that fish and I might get two casts in. So I might go something heavier, but to be honest, I want to get them on a 12 weight and a 12 weight glass. A glass 12 weight. Yeah. You are playing, <laughs> you are absolutely playing with fire. You can put so, you can put so much power on a, on a glass rod. It's unbelievable. I mean, I, oh. that's what I was all our fish these days. So, I mean, my last, all my last GTs that from my last trip, they were all caught on, on glass, on 12 weight glass. Yeah, well, I, I've been taking my cod on 10 weight glasses, and it's yeah. just like it's obviously it's, it's nearly comparable like to a jig stick in terms of the bending action that you can actually get out of one of those glass rods. Like they're heavy and they're a bastard caster and they're a bit soft, but like you can go hard, like you can set that hook and then you can go real hard. Right that way. Oh, that's, um, it's so much fun. Definitely. So, I, I mean, I'd probably have three rods rigged, I'm sure, with three <laughs> different flowers. And depending, you know, in that situation, for, I'm just talking about that very specific thing. And you probably pick the, and you probably pick the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Somewhere along the line. Oh God! Um, and and how does like you talked about it in terms of like your permit and everything else? How does it quickly just how does it stack up against other fisheries? Obviously, you said there's like it's a place to go for GTs, which is fantastic, and everyone knows Oman is a GT capital, basically of the world. In terms of and and we've gone through it a little bit, but in terms of stacking up against other fisheries, is it comparable to anywhere else or is it basically just like we've talked about that big melting pot of everything and it's just an incredible destination for so many different species? I think, Johnny, you can probably better answer that just because you've fished more uh, variety of destinations, sort of top water focused or lure fishing focused, yeah. boat based, et cetera, than I have. And i got to pee as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, in terms of that raw size of big GTs, it actually sits on its own. Um, the There are a couple other locations in the world uh, and they're kind of in that zone that might give it a nudge. Um, one of them is Socotra um, in Yemen. So, you know, it's literally hundreds of miles from there, you know, maybe mm. 10 or 15 hours on the water. Socotra has got an amazing reputation for big Gs uh, in this kind of class, but um, it's been off limits for a few years due to civil war. Um, Prior to COVID, there were, um, there was word of it maybe opening up, but um, who knows now? Um, So yeah, Socotra might give it a run, might. They've got some Uh, monster Napoleons there as well, don't they? I'm just saying. Socotra, I'm not sure about that. Um, I, I think I might be thinking of somewhere else, but I know there's somewhere in that Indian Ocean zone. Yeah, they, I they, thought it was, and like where you can actually have a proper shot at targeting them. Are, are you not confusing it maybe with Mauritius? I could be. Yeah, what because is that? Sorry? I, I just uh, kind of talking about the absence of Napoleons at um, Southern Oman in particular, but even at Socotra, I don't think they get them there. I haven't, I can't recall seeing um, shots of Napoleons at Socotra. Um, no, I haven't seen them in Socotra. Uh, no, bump, bump, no, bumpies were that's up in the Red Sea somewhere, like around. Yeah, there. yeah. And well, and the other thing that they don't get yeah. is doggies. 
they don't get doggies there, and they really? do. It, yeah, and they do either side. It's a weird thing. But it's funny where, like, anywhere in, say, you think about anywhere in the, like, the South Pacific, anywhere in, like, like yeah, that, that area around India, often you, where right. you, get, you get doggies, jeets, Napoleons, all your trout, Correct. everything all hanging in the same zone. So the Andamans. It's real funny. The Andamans are another location where, you know, big jeets are often encountered and also uh, Sri Lanka. Hmm. But I don't know if you get the numbers the numbers that get caught year in, year out. Like, I don't know if Ed's ever kept a log. It would be frightening to know the number of 50-pluses, 60-pluses, and now, you know, multiple 70-pluses. Well, that like that fish he there. got, what was it, the, the one he got this year that he wouldn't even put a number on the photo of that thing. That's yeah. So freaking I'll, nature. I'll, you also know, you the, also know um, if the fish is too big for Ed to pick it up, yeah. Yeah. it's huge because yeah, Ed yeah. is a so I, I I reckon I'm I do a decent job on a, a GT. I'm not the biggest man in the world, but my technique is pretty good and I'm reasonably strong. So I know a fish that would take me maybe ten minutes to get, you know, lip gaffed. It's got it there in two to three. He's <laughs> yeah. freaky, freakishly strong, and he and his technique is impeccable. Like probably no one has caught more big GTs than him. Like I don't know, maybe Sammy Gandor or someone like that. Might uh, I, I don't even think Sammy would come close. Though. I don't There's think so, man. Would be um, not Suzuki. Would be um, who's the big dipper skipper? Ah, uh, um, Fukisan. Yeah, Fukisan. Yep. Um, the other one, some fish. The other one that would have caught a lot of big fish would be uh, Fumio Suzuki yep. from um, Fisherman. He's caught a lot of big fish, yep. but yeah, um, crazy. I've been doing it for like thirty years longer than Ed has. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Like, you know, it's still a relatively a young man. You know, mm. he's got, got a lot of fishing ahead of him. A few more fishing you know, bangers. Although he yeah. seems to be getting a bit soft these days and, you know, more f- focused on, on fly and he's diversifying. And, but that uh, big fish you got, that was on PE6 or something, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was, uh, it's a PE8, sorry, six to eight rod and it was yep. PE8 line, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, he, he he's um, having chatted in depth with him about that fish. I think we're talking about a fight of twenty five minutes. You know, get just getting dumped on very heavy drag, just multiple times. Hmm. Um, yeah, the, oh, the like Ed, Ed won't Ed won't go with a number on that. But with Ed's PB being over seventy kilos, and he talks about how much bigger this fish is. The conversation has to begin on this fish at eighty. I reckon. Yeah. Like you look, you look at the photo, you look at the girth, and it's like I've certainly never seen a jeep that big. But you look at it, and you're looking like that fish looks like it has the mass of an eighty kilo freaking bluefin or yellowfin. That that um, entire fight is on video, mm. and I know Ed doesn't want to show it because he's he's just not happy with the whole thing, and you know he's not with the professional crew that you know helps get the fish on properly and deals with it properly. He's with his wife and kids. Yeah, yeah. And you know he's puking over the side, <laughs> and and I want to see it. The world needs to see it. The world but, needs to see it. But uh, Ed just doesn't want to, and uh, I think it really exposes one of his favourite spots. And he just he, he, Ed's a very protective fisherman. Yeah, fair. Uh, he, he he likes to look after his patch, and he he just battles with that. But yeah. So you know, your, your question was: Is there a, is there another place in the world like this? Look honestly, for my eyes, no. Where, where I've been, um, I, I think 
No. Um, I want to go to Newcal. Um, the top end of Newcal is pretty wild, um, but I don't think it will match this. Lovely. I think it's also a very different environment, John. That's the big thing as well. Is yeah, man. It's not like it's not like the Great Barrier Reef or uh, you know a lot of other GT focused or tropical fishing destinations. It just again, you you're not you know you're not in this tropical environment, which is where GTs should be. You're in this weird desert landscape, and yeah, you don't see a tree. You know, you don't never mind a, like a tropical coral reef and whatever. It's not that kind of environment. It's I don't know. That's part of the attraction for me as much as I love fishing the tropics and coral atolls and things like that. And I do. And I, they, you know, they're my favorite places in the world. Part of Oman's appeal or Southern Oman's appeal is, you know, fishing around those islands or fishing along those hundreds of kilometers of cliffs that have just never seen people and yeah. won't see people because there's no other reason to go there because it's so harsh. Hmm. Um, then you've just, you've got this landscape that looks like it's dead and has nothing and is like archaically old meeting this ocean just full of life and that zone where the two meet is, is such an interesting place to be with like life and death meets almost i remember one of the last days that i've fished there um ed and i together did a trip along the coast um you know doing a, your typical um brim run dre yeah. and um we went past you know how it's all largely limestone cliff um, yeah. There's one patch where there's just like from the desert, this big, steep expanse of sand came down to a very small beach and you could very clearly see quite large tracks in the uh, the sand first thing in the morning. We went in quite close and Ed's like, oh, that's fucking cool. That's, um, that's the puma, the mountain puma that they get in the desert. Yeah, and he's actually seen one in the flesh. And I think wow. they, they get a, a wolf as well. There's a desert wolf. Yeah, there's a, there's a – and there's all those creatures that come across the desert from – there's a film. I was trying to remember what Ed, a documentary that they shot, like something to do with Arabian Nights or something. And it's like all the desert crit- critters that come from like your foxes, your wolves, everything that when the turtles come and beach, it's like the yeah. largest concentration of these turtles in a certain part of the coast. It literally draws in life from like the entire country of these desert animals and things that come in there to feed on the um, on the baby turtle hatching. Mm. Yeah. All right, that's like I can't I can't contain myself anymore. Off to the microphone and the camera off soon. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta I gotta go to work soon, guys. Shit, sorry. No, no. Half an hour late, so we gotta gonna have to go a little quick. All right. I'm Basically. Happy to jump off. We've basically covered what we're about to go through, and this is the final final end of it all. Um, GT popping is basically what we thought was like this was going to be about, but obviously it's more than just that. Um, it's obviously a world-renowned fishery. The class of fish we've talked about, effort versus reward. That one, that's that one bite that putting that opportunity in there to come across that one fish, and it sounds like you're not going to go anywhere else. It's going to give you that opportunity. I, I can't actually. I, I don't know if there's anything that we can add to GT popping. Is there anything else that we can add to GTs? Lewis, I think everyone's a tackle junkie. Yeah. Who would listen to this podcast. So, guys, like, no limit on it, but what do you must have lures, whether they be for light tackle or GTs, GTs in particular? I, I think John will better have in terms of like actual specifics and things like mm-hmm. that. But for me, the most important thing, and this is coming from like a, 
much more everyday angler in terms of fitness than someone like John or Ed or something like that is fish lures that you're comfortable throwing. Yeah. You know, like it doesn't make any sense to go and spend a huge t- bunch of coin um, to buy these massive, like it, whatever, a, a hammerhead eye cup, for example, which is 230 grams. Like, yeah, I'm going to throw a big ass pop on a really big, heavy popping rod. My first year I went there with a heavy popping rod, P10 and 18, Stella 18,000. And I nearly fucking died. Yeah, because throw that on a bloody monster. Boat, you know, it doesn't make sense for me to be to get ten, to have ten casts and then want to you know like feel like I'm going to pass out. It gets hot there. I mean, hmm. we've had days there where it's 45 degrees. It's warm. I mean, no in Australia, used yeah. to the heat, but it's no wind and that heat and it's dry. It's gnarly. So fish lures and setups that you are comfortable fishing. I mean, you don't you know make sure you know in terms of. Uh, you know, your, your line and your braid and whatever you're fishing PE 10, you've got good hooks, but fish a lure that you can throw, you know, I'd rather throw a smaller lure for yeah. two hours than think, okay, I'm going to throw some big Hail Mary supersonic giant mass of 300 gram stick bait or 250 gram stick bait or 200 gram popper even. And, and go out and cast the thing for like five hours before you go figure out your own strength and where it is. You know, hmm. Man's got to know his weaknesses, Drake. Hundred percent, hundred percent. No, it's a, you know, it's it's a it's a wake up call. We all think we're bulletproof, but like, oh fuck, it's just a fishing rod. No man, that thing will <laughs> kick your ass. And you're on a rocking boat. I mean, especially if you go in, Johnny. You know, prime season, the rougher the better. You yeah, know, you're not going, you're not going in prime season to fish from flat calm seas. Is the winds go? If the winds doing twenty knots and we've got like, you're on six to, six to eight feet of swell. It's like woohoo! Now we're catching fish. Yeah, you know, but yeah. that will. Ass man, and in your full body strength. I mean, that's why you and, and Ed are, are so sort of successful technique wise, is that you guys understand and realize that to optimize your opportunity in a place like that, it's not just about your tackle, especially if you're chasing jeets. It's not just about your tackle. Your tackle can be an ex- exceptional and perfect, but if your body's in shitty shape, um, or you're trying to over you know push your body past what it can handle, if you're in the shape to throw 120 gram poppers, don't try to throw 200 gram poppers. In terms that of preparation, is not just yeah, gear, not just you know. So I, I say about your physical preparation if you're going to go there, right? You're spending five thousand bucks to go, and you know you got this high expectation. Do yourself a fucking favor and prepare. <laughs> like um, if you're if you're a big strong guy and you're probably going to handle the fish pretty well, get some cardio about you and get some conditioning. If you're a smaller guy and, you know, the fish is, you know, if 14 kilos of drag is going to drag you in, you probably want to spend some time in the gym, you know, and, and it'll get your heart rate up mega high to fighting a fish like that. G- generally what happens to people is they get worn out really hard by lots and lots of casting, casting gear that's too heavy, like Dre mm. said, and right when they're at their weakest, they get railed. Yeah. That's when the fight comes and... Yeah often people blow those chances and I reckon the number one thing of people losing monster GTs, not getting reefed. It's not getting the hook set. Hmm. It's not getting the hook set. And not having the physical strength and like you say, conditioning to be in the position to still have some gas. Yeah. When that fish comes along and then your technique goes to shit and you see people trying to like fight the fish with a bent arm and they're bent over and then you're ruining your back and you're bending your arm and it's hard to maintain yeah, technique is. mentally when you're, when you're knackered, you know, when you bug it and whatever. Whereas 
if you the more experience you have doing it i mean like the, the, my first couple of trips there i was shit scared all day every day that i was going to get to eat yeah because <laughs> i thought i was going to hurt myself and then you kind of learn to like just you don't have i don't know i'm not ed nicholas i'm not going to land a 55 kilo jeet in three minutes which i've watched him do without even sweating I'm going to struggle, but at least like chill out and kick back and be like, Hey, enjoy it here. Mm. You know, if it means it's going to take me 10 minutes or 15 minutes to land that fish. So what I've still got a chance, but keep your arms straight, you know, like do, do the right things and don't push yourself too hard because I still want to fish tomorrow or this afternoon, or, you know, I want to catch another one. So it's a mental approach, physical approach. It's everything all in one. I think like preparation is is nine tenths of the battle. And that's something you'll learn. Like for anyone who hasn't done the whole heavy tackle top water, like it's something you learn very quickly. Is just appropriate technique is so so important. Like learning how to fight the fish, and it's something that does come with experience. Like oh, I sucked at it at first, but the more you do it, the better you get. And saves your back. You can fish for longer. You can cast for longer, and you're just more aware. Like last thing you want would be popping or, work, or sweeping a stick bait not paying attention when that fish finally hits you freaking miss yeah. up you got to watch every cast the, yeah. look at the japanese like the, you know they're 60 kilo ring and wet and they fight some of the biggest fish so well and get them in yeah. quick yeah right. yeah awesome. you asked about gear if i was going tomorrow i would make sure these four lures were in my role a blaze satatha which is a big deep faced popper yeah. an amagari Kaksu stick bait, probably a, a 240 mil. A Heru skipjack, probably 150 grams. And a fisherman long pen, 170 grams. I would happily go on a trip with those four lures. Yep. I'd want I'd want more than one each of them. <laughs> you lost one, you know, you got a big hole in it. But I would happily go, like, get, don't get me wrong, plenty of other lures going to catch fish. I've just got such good results consistently <laughs> out of those four. Put yeah. I love how the skipjacks got in there. Those things just get eaten by anything and everything. Man, they rack and lure for anything. Dr- Dre's caught big G's on them. Hmm. Yeah, man. Love those yeah. things. Can they be found at the, the other one I'd throw in there would be, would be uh, <laughs> um, uh, big numbers or a GTX or yeah. a Bigfoot. You got yeah. I mean, like, I pretty much all I fish these days is Orion's. And then I would awesome go. Was made so the, nice. Yeah, Ryan, Mr. Joe. I don't go. I mean, my 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 dog's named after. My dog's <laughs> name's Joe. It's named after the bloody lure. Um, <laughs> that if I had one, what well, like one inshore lure to take, you know, like I'll, the JC's got vastly more experience on the GT side than me. But if it was the, for me, one lure for inshore, a small smallish sinking stick bait, and like I, I wouldn't look past the the Ryan, Mr. Joe. For sure, Dre, in, on the inshore, yeah. the small sinking sticks outfish pure topwater lures, hey? Yeah. 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 They're, a very, they're a lure you can do everything with too. Like you can still yeah. fish a sinking stick just under the surface. You can use it as a yeah. skipping. So. Rod tip up and you skip them if you need to. Mm. Yeah. Like uh, no matter where I am, even in even in some of the skippy estuaries, you always have some sort of sinking stick, you know, or stick pencil on Yeah, you. for sure. You have to. <laughs> Whether there's Taylor about big brim. Down here, tuna, kingfish, salmon, whatever it be. Yeah. No matter where you are in the world. The clouds are minnow of, of, of <laughs> yeah. without a clouds of minnow. It'll catch everything and anything. Or a white one ounce bucktail jig. Yeah. yeah. So, always gotta have that you know, that'll cover every single base. I, th- I think I would I think I would throw throw on a few clouses, hopefully on Sunday at tuna. If I can get if yeah. I could hook if I could get the opportunity to put one fly in front of those tuna and hook one. Whoo, 
I'm going to be that so, keen. I guarantee yeah. something will happen. I, don't, I can't guarantee it, <laughs> but something will happen. You will cast at something we see. Uh, guys, I'm sorry to do this, but I uh, I'm already 20 minutes late, and I need to get the hell out of it. Perfect guys. timing. We have got everything we need to, to. Uh, hang out. Shot for having me. No, no worries. Do you want to plug your socials, Andre? What, where can people find you? Where can people get in contact with you? Websites, uh, whatever. Instagram man, Neptuna with two P's. N e double P T U N A. That's me. A- anywhere else? Or is that the main? Nah. That, that man? No, nah, wicked. That's, not, that's it, bro. That's pretty much all I do, you know. I mean, if you if you're on the fly fishing side, you know, check out um, check out the Mission Fly Mag, um, which is run by some buddies, and the Feathers and Fluoro blog, which a couple of us write. The Mission Fly Mag is free; it's online. Um, it's got some good, good mag. Shit in it. Good mag. Yeah, it's not like a it's not a how to and top best flies for this. It's a bunch of idiots going fishing and having a good time, pretty much. Yeah, exactly the same as this man. Like that's what we do world. you know it's all about the, it's uh yeah it's about having a good time out there it's about, it's about the mission yeah exactly the cult of fly fishing that's what it's at but Wonderful. it was nice to see you guys thanks very much for having me i appreciate it jc nice to see, see you man. brother, Love see you, brother. Give her a hug me and we'll chat soon we'll do take it easy guys thank you see you andre, see you, andre. Yeah. ciao guys and jc where may all our listeners find you at so the, the business website's uh, edtidetackle.com. Um, you can find us on Insta, YouTube, and Facebook with the same username, Ebtide Tackle. And me personally um, on Instagram as Blue Water Johnny at Blue Water Johnny. Easy. That's it. Oh, and, and, and our podcast, of course, boys. Yeah. Oh, how can we forget? Yes, um, the Outflow. For those who haven't checked out the Outflow, get on it. They always get me driving to work. Great listening, and your your last episode, the Kingfish one. For anyone in Southern Australia, get that in your ears. It is a really big issue at the minute. Like we we're all talking about it just before this, well, before we started our podcast today as well, should I say? But some there needs to be some action taken pretty soon, and the boys go well deep into the, the issues and what could potentially happen. Yeah, and, and there's a couple of experienced you know, guys there from both the Sydney scene mm. and the South Australian scene that are well worth listening to, guys. We're um, I know we're probably a bit like you at uh, putting out podcasts is more work than it seems. Yes. Um, we were pretty hardcore at it through COVID, trying to pump them out. But um, you know, uh, every fortnight, every month, somewhere in there, we get a podcast out. It's mm. um, it's a bit of work to it. It's like it's like. Yeah, you know, building videos for YouTube, it doesn't just happen. No, and that's what we learned. Like, we were gun hoes, smashing at least one out a week, and then, well, life gets in the way, like, between work and other commitments yeah. and just genuinely, like, of course, it, when it comes down to it, if we have the choice to go fishing or put out a podcast, like, let's not bullshit people here. We're going fishing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but like, yeah, basically, we're going to, we, we will release one every two weeks, but the aim of this is to make sure that we're hitting Quant, like quality stuff rather than quality. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And it's basically the same as same as what we do with fishing. We're trying to hit quality fish rather than we are trying to. I prefer to put in heaps of effort into one thing once than to put a tiny bit of effort into a heap of things multiple times. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So, anyway, thanks so much today, John. Like, really appreciate you coming on. Pleasure, Dale. Pleasure, Mitch. No Thank stress. you very much. All right, we'll catch you later. Thanks, everybody. And yes, on the cast media. If you, and if you feel like it, slide into our DMs on in, Instagram. Also, send us an email on thecastmedia at gmail.com. 
Yes. All right. Cheers, Mitch. Cheers, JC. We'll catch you next time. Yeah.